Weird to the Wise. We are a spooky podcast tackling content with Halloween themes, as well as entering ah territory, if you aren't caught up with us. That week would be through chapter 61 of Pierce Brown's Lightbringer. Blah! Blah! Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. Motherfucker doesn't even change up the pattern to reflect the fact that we're recording this on Halloween Day. God damn it. I get it. (laughs) I understand. (laughs) I get I get that you're mad. I get that it is a holiday, but we're fighting now. You know, we're here. We're fighting now for the rest <laughs> of the episode. This episode has some creeps in it of sorts. So, kind of, yeah. not really, not really. This episode is pretty straightforward. There's, <laughs> but there's uh, dust mice, which is kind of like ghost mice, which is a pretty decent folk punk band. <laughs> <laughs> you spun yourself right around the drain, and I love it. But today is our eighth episode, and we're going to be talking about chapters 53 through 61 of Pierce Brown's Lightbringer. But first, before we get into that, let's talk about their featured cocktail. PJ, what are you having today? I have, I mean, I'm going to call it the featured cocktail, but it, it, I poured it out of a jar. I have <laughs> <laughs> apple pie moonshine produced by the one and only Tolson, our Tim that we think at the end of every show. He he made us moonshine and distributed it over the weekend at a Halloween party that we were both at. As far as I understand. We were both at. I was not there. Tim and I. But you mean him and, yeah. I <laughs> Tolson and I were <laughs> both there. Kidding. I'm just mad. So it is a base of Everclear, which if you, depending on what state you're in in the U.S., if you're in the U.S., Everclear comes in a couple different varieties. Minnesota, the highest you can buy is 151 proof Everclear. In Wisconsin, right across the border next door, uh, you can buy 190 proof Everclear. So that's what he did. So 190 proof Everclear, apple cider, some cinnamon, and whatever unholy magic he tapped into to make it taste so goddamn good are the ingredients for this this moonshine. Somehow this is 22%. ABV and I would be hard pressed if given just a sip of this without any pretense, I'd be hard pressed to tell you that it's alcoholic at all. And I, (laughs) you and I drink a lot, like naturally we drink a lot. We try to taste a lot of different boozes and different drinks and everything. There, there is, there's hidden alcohol and then there's like undetectable alcohol. And this is in the later (laughs) camp. Yeah, it's so good. That's crazy. It's it's always interesting when those things kind of manifest in whatever way or shape they do. And I'm kind of it's exciting that you're you're getting some of that because I do remember fondly moments of of this apple pie moonshine over different years of living with Tim or Tim showing up to things and bringing it. And every fall, it's always a treat. Mm-hmm. So glad you get it this year. So good. You'll have to come visit. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> let's let's back off of the visit for a little bit here. I think I think I think we need to reverse this trend just a smidge. <laughs> yeah, I agree. You're uh, right. But yeah. No, it's it's all good. It's all good. Very funny. But yeah, okay. So I am. Are, are you following that up with anything, or you just uh, have moonshine yes. today? And it, I I think is apt for previous conversations uh, between you and I before we started recording. This meeting could have been an email. <laughs> oh, true. Uh, I love that. It's a double IPA from Toppling Goliath in collaboration with Corporate Ladder Brewing Company. I'm very excited to hear about that. So, yeah. Yeah. What about um, you? Crossing? I'm having, I'm having an easy classic. This is just sort of normal at this point, but I have been a little bit pressed for time with a number of different activities going on and things going on, you know, kind of the holiday season weekend, friend moving away, all the various travel, new opportunities rising, work making me travel. And so I haven't had time to like go out and do like a craft beer run or even like, collect new cocktail ingredients so pj what i have for you today is a lovely you're making space dust (laughs) no i wish out of what american cheese that's in my fridge (laughs) ramen noodles (laughs) i think if you put american cheese into anything it cannot ferment (laughs) i don't know if it's able to You're probably right. <laughs> You're probably right. No, but I'm having Legion space dust. It's right. kind of classic. It's easy. It's it, it was accessible at the time. Yeah. I went to, I went to the closest place. That wasn't just the local brewery. They weren't open earlier mm-hmm. when I was <laughs> being like, oh shit, I should go get something. <laughs> so I just figured securing this was a decent enough bet. Um, yeah. It occupies so. that same space as like Bell's Two Hearted, where good. It, it, we're furious for a long time until things dropped off yeah. even more. Um where it's it's acceptable. Serviceable, or, widely available. Yeah, it, yeah. You know what you're getting, it's consistent, and you can rarely go wrong with it. So Yep. Yeah. Presented with something better, would choose the better thing, but you know, it's again, not like it's bad by any stretch. Right. So with that out of the way, PJ, let's talk a little bit about how you feel about this week's reading on the whole. How we how we feeling? This felt somehow like a different book, not in a bad way, not hmm. not in a particularly good way either. Like it, not in any way that like says anything about the quality going into or coming out of this section. But it just it, it felt so different and it, it felt uh stronger in some respects it felt like a return to form as far as darrow being the strong thinker and and speaker that he is which we've gotten a lot of that throughout this story so i don't know why i feel that way but they're they're, they're that long fucking speech man just really felt good <laughs> Yeah, the full chapter of like potentially Darrow's last rite and testament is is pretty great. I mean, it's pretty tough to beat. And you could imagine our character going out right now in some alternate universe. Mm-hmm. Or this one. Do you really think that? Uh, no, but <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I just mean like, I don't. At least for Darrow. <laughs> I'm not convinced 
that it couldn't happen. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. Yes. Yeah. If it weren't for the fact that the POV was so important to the story, I would, I think I would tend to agree with you. Yeah. Maybe yeah. Diomedes gets pardoned and he takes over the, <laughs> that POV. The POV. That'd be, we swap a D for a D. It'd be, you know, Razor Master for Razor Master. That'd be interesting. Or they blend somehow and we get Diomedes. Diomedes. Form in a blender. <laughs> Throw Cassius in there too while we're at it. Why not? Diomedes Assius. <laughs> You're just going to tack on Assius to the end of it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> just screw the C. It's fine. <laughs> Diomedes. Diomedes. That's not bad. That's not bad. I think I prefer Diomedes. <laughs> <laughs> There's just something about the Asius on there that mm-hmm. I just like. I like the end of that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I get you. Mm-hmm. Does my it's, like, it's, sort it's of chair nice. stance on this week make sense, though? Does it? Does that ring with you at all? I, I think that it's interesting because I, I wouldn't say necessarily that I feel like it's a, you know, a different book. And I know that you're not being disparaging by any stretch, but it is a sort of it is a way stop on our journey, right? In a way that probably wasn't anticipated in any sort of meaningful, meaningful way. Like you, we knew that Athena was going to be like potentially not amenable to Darrow and the cause and like that whole idea of like calling Severo intentionally. But you don't really expect it to go this badly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And uh, but at the, the same time, rationales make sense. Exactly. It, it, I couldn't right. really see it going any other way, the way they have their structure. Yeah. In so. hindsight, it's impossible to unsee, but at the same time, it's so it's so distinct, I think, in a way from a lot of a lot of the other portions of the books. And it's in a big way, it's the first time that Darrow's really faced down real accountability. <laughs> <laughs> like ever. <laughs> yeah. Especially I mean, even even against his own even against like Adrius, <laughs> like he, he hasn't really faced something down like this before. Yeah, tough, tough to say. All right, cool. All right, with that, let's move into our chapters here, and we begin with chapter 53, Darrow, Eyes of Stone. We open this week on a relatively gruesome scene left in the wake of Fa and his Obsidian Consortium. Darrow lets Diomedes go to discover his family's fate on his own in their tombs underneath the uh, ruins of Sungrave. All the while, Darrow reminisces on his first time here all those years ago with Romulus. He also, just for fun, speculates on Serafina's fate, and little does he know what really happened to her. Diomedes later returns and confirms he is almost surely one of the last Raw alive. Darrow has Diomedes on a very, very long leash right at the beginning of this section, and he points it out as a litmus test for his honor. And while that's true, I feel like he's already got a pretty good grasp on what kind of man Diomedes is and how much he can trust him. Um, But what this does for us, for readers, for me specifically, if it didn't do it for anybody else, is it creates this like this sense of trust and this sense of camaraderie between Darrow and Diomedes that produces a whiplash effect and really puts the daughters of Athena into almost an antagonistic light right when we meet them. And not that we wouldn't already, given the way that they treat Darrow, 
but the spitting in the face and everything like makes this he's set up to be a companion throughout this entire section up until that point and it's only a, a chapter or two but you start to forget that they're pure adversaries and like literally on opposite sides of the war and like it it, it shifts that perspective really effectively for me yeah i i think that it does an excellent job and in general this text finally shows to us like in in i think a real and tangible way the person that diomedes is right like we've always maybe suspected him to be an honorable man but is he just an honorable man among the other golds or does he actually believe you know in in honor being more than just something that is a transient belonging or like claim to the culture that he's a part of right does he does he see it stretching beyond just sort of a a loyalty to a code for those who adhere to his like same culture right and i think this is kind of what shows him or has at the very least reestablished that further beyond his already like saving of cassius that we've seen previously. yeah cassius is one thing like i i got the understanding of who he could be based on cassius which as you mentioned, the honor amongst golds is a bit different than just pure honor. Right. That paired with him being raised by Romulus and wh- who, what we saw of Romulus through Darrow's eyes kind of created a picture of who I believed Diomedes to be, which seems to be an accurate one. Yeah. I I totally agree with that and definitely understand that. We just see that kind of blossom over the course of the rest of this week's reading as well. It's kind of a, a unique perspective that we kind of get to mm-hmm. see it unfold and stretch further. So I think that part's great. I also really appreciate Pierce's decision to have Darrow reflect on Serafina's fate in this moment and for Darrow to reflect on that because it is so it's so interesting to see the sort of philosopher man or philosophizing man that he is step into and expose himself into thinking about someone of whom we know from a pov wanted him dead more than anything else right like this is this is a guy who is thinking about this child and how she totally didn't deserve the fate that was likely handed to her not realizing that literally last book she was hunting him down and was joining to prove the honor of the rim in some false bravado move. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I just love, I love that little dose of, of sort of bitter irony that we get to experience as readers while Darrow laments yeah. or thinks about it. It is, it is kind of ironic at the same time. I, I think it would, it's within Darrow's sort of character to, Think something like that and for it to come up when he's reminiscing on visiting the Raws. So I mm-hmm. I don't see it as out of place, uh, but it was wonderful to include that here with that sense of irony. Yeah, yeah. And he does say that she could have died on some other front of the war and does suppose that it could have gone other ways. But I mean, still, like it's it's just a nice, I don't mm-hmm. know, it's it's nice in a moment that is otherwise rather laconic. I also want to actively apologize for my language. I've been listening to so much Christopher Rocchio lately reading through the Sun Eater books that I have just, you know, when you like read a lot of something or you listen to a lot of something, you start to mimic, right? Like we've gone through this before, like the I was saying Gambit a lot for whatever reason, because I just got latched into it. 
and then Queen's Gambit happened, and then I like doubled down, <laughs> which is not better. But I have I'm reminded of words, <laughs> large, big, long, lengthy, talky words recently reading through those books. So, like laconic, which is the propensity to become a werewolf. Yes, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly <laughs> what laconic means. I'm so glad that you are on the same page with me, that the lupine mode is exactly like becoming a real werewolf. <laughs> and that is our new theme <laughs> for Fred Rising going forward. I do also want to bring up the little conversation that we get between the pair of them as they discuss the purpose of war. And Dara brings up two points within it. One, that genocide really isn't the goal. And two, the point of war is not to kill your enemies, but to come to an acceptable peace while losing as few as possible. I just think it's it's like a it's a necessary head nod to the reality that conflict will forever exist to some degree, but that even within conflict, there should be a goal that is peace. Yeah, I was frankly struck by this answer and I don't I don't feel like I should have been upon reflection. Yeah, of course. Of course, that's Darrow's view on the meaning of war and the the. Uh, goal of war but given how much bloodshed and just cold rage that we've witnessed from him and we've seen a turn we've seen not necessarily a turn we've seen a uh an ebbing of that rage lately but it's still it's still hard to divorce him from that that vibe and sort of a cold attrition based definition of warfare yeah it's it is it's great to have an understanding of where he stands philosophically on the concept because it's always been like win win kind of at any cost it's like well it's not really win at any cost because there are other costs that are associated and this chapter and the reason that this week is kind of bookended the way that it is in my head with like where we begin and where we end is in part because I feel like it is him reckoning with a past self that didn't necessarily adhere to the same rules that he's come to understand over the intervening 12 or 13 years. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of that through this section. Yeah. Yeah. Growth. We love it. (laughs) There is also another conversation that comes out of the pair confronting each other, including their discussion of FA and their qualities evaluating the qualities of a terrorist and the definitions of a slaver. They move from that conversation after a brief interruption that we'll get to in just a moment here into a discussion of how this whole thing seems completely, perfectly and conveniently organized. Here's here's more, just more, more, more instances of changing that perspective of who Diomedes is, what he represents, who he stands for, who he fights for. And it's hard for me to keep in mind that these two people are theoretically very tense enemies. And mm-hmm. a lot of this conversation and conversations going forward start dipping into the realm of what you'd probably consider state secrets and or at least vital information to the war effort that military strategists would greatly admonish Darrow for revealing or, <laughs> <laughs> right. you know, it, it's neither of them are acting cagey and it's hard to, hard to believe, but obviously Diomedes is taking in a lot of information and holding a, a hell of a lot back until later, particularly Lysander's involvement in the war 
or in, in the attack. So it, it's just more creating more cognitive dissonance for me between no, that's probably not the right term. More uh how would you describe it? The it's it's warping my perception of their adversarial positioning against each other. Yeah, yeah, it's it's beginning to I mean it's the beginning of the shape of their relationship, right? I think especially at this point it's like this is proving to be something more in part because one Darrow is actually listening to his friends for the first time in the series in a long time, like <laughs> believing Cassius and believing what Cassius says and so taking that advice to heart in a in a big way with Diomedes and there therefore extending trust to him and that is, you know, that is sort of emblematic of the way that this proceeds but it is also kind of warping that relationship of whom we know to be a you know for a gold generally a good guy um but like overall still a gold as uh we're later reminded yeah yeah definitely yeah getting back to that interruption that happens in the middle of this i feel like it just makes sense to talk about all of these at once but we get a quick interruption in the middle of kind of their conversation from the intercom that informs informs us that athena is still alive and also that she has people on the ground we then move to a second camera feed with eagle one having spied the volk running slaves aboard a ship cassius ever the brave and honorable nan ignores orders and decides to charge in on his own being further away darrow hails howler two who turns him down in favor of the primary mission very same thing that darrow just chastised cassius for ignoring which is <laughs> just such like a good it's such a good turn it is i mean it's the bluff was called in darrow yeah. Right. Explicitly mentions that. Um, but if I wanted to stay really paranoid, really conspiracy corner esque, I'd say this is a well orchestrated Bologna trick. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'll try not to stay paranoid like that. I mean, knowing how this ends and everything, but coming off of last week where, you know, I made comments about. Cassie's is trap snapping shut. So I'll, I'll try to avoid that paranoia and genuinely commend Cassius for his actions here. He was ill-prepared and full of gusto and hubris. And it was <laughs> not a good idea and could not do this on his own. And couldn't do this with Darrow's help. Couldn't do this with Darrow, Severo's, and Diomedes' help. Like, it is dumb fucking luck that they got out of this alive. <laughs> yeah. But for sure, the, the idea of tricking Darrow to coming and saving Cassius and leaving Diomedes unattended would have been a really, really well-constructed plot. If only Cassius didn't know that Diomedes was a good dude and wasn't going to do that. <laughs> yeah. Hey. To to be fair, you know, if if you're looking way earlier in this book, you can see those same kind of marks on Severa, right? Like he kind of has the same sort of impression of like, he's got that paranoia. He comes around in the end, of course, but he had that same paranoia for a bit. Mm -hmm. To end the chapter, Darrow takes off as Diomedes leaves him with his parole and his word that he won't flee, which I just think gets back to this whole idea of like real trust and sort of the... I mean, one part of this is where the fuck is Diomedes going to go? Like, he really can't. Everyone's dead. Everything seems to be despoiled. But also the level of trust here is big. I agree. But at the same time, 
even if Diomedes wasn't trustworthy, didn't give his parole even, and was just mm -hmm. circumstantially detained by Darrow's presence, even if there was like a high probability of him just leaving, I think Darrow still would have gone. Because this was an un yeah, this, right. this wasn't part of the plan anyway. Like, yeah, it's it's a great asset. It's a great prisoner to hold, but Cassius is more important in the long run. Yeah, and and do they even gain anything off Diomedes? Really? What do they anyway? Gain? Like, yeah, they, yeah, they don't they, really have. Or he's what, not really what do they lose by chip. losing him? Really? That that's right. more of it. Like, they have a lot to gain by keeping him. As far as mm -hmm. intel goes, but what do they lose other than there's that another potential for intel? Yeah, 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 exactly. But there's no dire threat that really comes out of letting him go immediately. Yeah, fair. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, of course. And he would much rather, much rather be saving Cassius. So let's get to that chapter. Chapter 54. And like what's crazy is this this week on paper seems a lot longer than it should be. Like the number of chapters here, it's crazy. The amount of total content, not that crazy. It's it's about <laughs> average for a week. But like I was even staring this down the other day and I was like, oh, God, I still have five chapters to go inside of this. And I had already read it. So I should have known I listened to it rather. So I hadn't reread it physically, of which I did when I do my notes generally. But I was going through and doing the back half and i'm like oh each of these are like six five to six pages like these are not big chapters what am i thinking and it's because tgr puts so much into the speeches here at the end and the the dialogue between them that it stretches for a lot more than it is on paper mm -hmm. so yeah. anyway i digress i just didn't realize it <laughs> in the moment so with that let's get to chapter 54 darrow pela 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 I want to start this chapter with a bit of an extra textual anecdote that I think you'll appreciate. One of the many things that Pierce has said about the series and its action is that as a rule, he never tries to repeat scenes or sequences. Every battle scene, every action sequence should feel unique and separate from those that came before. You don't want to have to follow down the path of repeating an action scene and then just increasing the power flourish or balance of it as that just escalates things and makes you think the things that came before it less favorably it's part of the reason that i think each combat scene really stands on its own and pela 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 really is no exception it's mostly that's like combo paraphrase and you know my own mm -hmm. sort of writing there but you know just to kind of give you context i think that that is a fascinating way to construct a lot of these things inside of the series and a way to give us you know always keeping it fresh and new i think understandably i have avoided interviews and and um quotes from pierce that get outside of the story for fear of any even unintentional small spoilers so i hadn't heard that quote or that that idea but it makes complete sense and if that's not a uh standard goal of writers of action sequences uh, it should be totally should be because it, it makes for great uh, storytelling and memory just remembering what happens in what scene is so much easier if all of them are unique so mm -hmm. right like it's much easier to remember pela 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 or there's a scene later that is a great title we can think of like the gala duel or the the different battles and man i can maybe maybe 
think of five scenes in total from the original Mistborn trilogy, maybe that I could like go and actually recapture the thought of what was actually happening in the battle versus like I can pretty specifically pick out and remember everything that happens in a lot of different battles here. Right. Totally. And I, and I think you, that, that you has and I both to do with the choice. Enjoy the battles in, in the Mistborns trilogy. I, I think I like yeah. it probably more than you do because of the technical like breakdown of it and the way that it's written. But I don't think you've ever come out and said you dislike the. No, I, yeah. I have no problem. I, I actually really like it. I think that it feeds into some physics, science, nature breakdown that I really appreciate components of. Uh, but there was that okay. said, I don't remember knew, like the significances yeah. of any of the battles almost. Like, yeah, there's a like couple. I, there, I there remember a few, obviously, but yeah, right. I, I can I can think of off the top of my head about five, maybe six. Maybe to a book ish that and, you know, one of I think actually in almost all circumstances, it's like the beginning and the end of books. But yeah, mm-hmm. so. Regardless, I just it's it's an interesting thing and it's it's a great perspective. I know that especially in this is just like a rule in writing. You had mentioned this earlier is like most authors should be doing this. It kind of is a, is a thing that authors have to pay attention to is not duplicating scenes ever and like not trying to do that, especially within the same story arc. But I find that especially over the course of a series. You can get to a point where you're repeating scenes or repeating similar scenes pretty easily from like a, a journeyman's perspective of like i'm going through and i'm writing this and it's like oh shit i just wrote another bar scene i don't i shouldn't have written that why did i do that i don't need to have like a bunch of friends talking at a bar again like that's not interesting um unless you mm-hmm. make it interesting or different somehow so right that makes sense yep um so that's a thing there's one other th- oh my god what were you saying you were saying something about oh just the there's a joke within the Christopher Rocchio interview that I was listening to or Q&A that I was listening to yesterday for a bit. And he said something like freebasing tin to do a fireball just isn't fun to me. <laughs> and I, went, I just couldn't stop laughing as far as like a writer perspective goes. <laughs> I was like, that's, that's pretty funny. Yeah, that is pretty funny. Anyway. To get back to the book here. Darrow takes off and hoping to make it to Cassius as quickly as possible to, you know, save the day here for him. I love the description that we get of how the grab boots function, launching him up 10 stairs at a time, all while he's kind of delicately falling and just he's trying to stay underneath radar as well to not pick up extra detection. Clearly, that's why he doesn't just take off into the air right away. But eventually he says, fuck it, launches himself into the air so that he can get up and over to get to the boys. <clears throat> And Cassius does excellent work. We learn of the Pala maneuver, which I think is really neat as he bounces back and forth between the lines of obsidians using momentum to carry him through, cleaving through multiple with seeming ease for a bit here. Yeah, that Pala maneuver (laughs) felt beautiful. It felt so elegant and well-planned and got swatted out of the fucking air. (laughs) Yeah, right. Like, I felt like the commentary on Cassius's feed was a beautiful way of giving some context to the maneuvers used by Gold and Darrow's ability to orchestrate defenses against 
those maneuvers specifically, Gold. but just in in general, his his ability to choreograph defenses in general. And, and I really appreciate your use of the word choreograph there for the record, because these are kind of like dances in the way that totally. they're described. It's I mean, less they they always have been through the mm-hmm. the fighting styles and cravat in general. Like mm-hmm. it it has been described. I don't know if it explicitly mentions it as dance moves or or anything like that, but thinking to like Game of Thrones and Arya's dancing master or Right, that that was the term, right? Yeah, yep. yeah. Like it, it, it makes complete <laughs> sense that swordplay and footwork going hand in hand is analogous to dancing. Yeah, yeah. I think I also think there's something interesting with the combat scenes in which, comparatively to a lot of other fantasy or science fantasy or sci-fi in general, there isn't like a whole lot of weight to something like a razor like it's not like a it's not a great sword it's not you know even like the dark saber from star wars which has some tangible weight to it so it functions Does very it? differently and so it flows yeah the dark I, saber has tangible weight as opposed to lightsabers which are yes which gotcha. are effectively they kind of live in a void that we're not exactly sure of but it seems as though i don't know the, the real answer is, is that Disney hasn't answered that question fully. In main canon, you can't use a lightsaber unless you're a force user because it does require you to actually focus on it to maintain some balance within the kyber crystal and yada, yada, yada. But regardless, that doesn't change the dark saber fact, if that makes sense. Okay. So. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, razors, um, as far as I understood, they were basically like... The weight of a rapier, <laughs> like if yeah, anything, yeah. like just very, very, very delicate as far as weight goes, and um, but a substantial edge, yeah. obviously. Oh, God. right, yeah, yeah. The ability to turn into a microfiber whip, basically, which is ridiculous and so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so to to move move kind of away from that, that was just you know it's it's an interesting thing. It's great to see the maneuver. It does feel a lot like dancing, or in kind of the case of the Pala 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 mover, the way that it's described with Cassius. I kind of imagined it as swimming, or like you know coordinated swimming around these people as he's kind of swinging back and forth. I don't know. I just I like that kind of metaphor of flying around them. Yeah, but that's that's a good point and when you're when you're talking about swimming in relation to uh fast paced things swim swimming is so sluggish but if you're in the air that's even though you're moving a lot faster than through the water it's going to be the most analogous way to describe what you're doing so yeah yeah i mean follow similar rules but yeah, I mean, it just kind of feels that way, especially with the way that he kind of like grabs on and hooks around bodies and then turns and, you know, manipulating weight and G's to spin. It just feels immediately analogous to that to me in my head. But I, I really wanted to kind of add in here that there's a little bit of fun math that I appreciate that I'm sure there's something more specific when we break down what gravity is on IO that maybe this is terminal velocity. But Darrow falls into this combat at approximately, as stated on the page, 100 kilometers per hour, which is approximately half of the terminal velocity of Earth. I didn't go and look up the gravitational differences, what the forces are. So it's I'm curious. The gravity is going to be one thing. Yeah. But more than that is going to be actually almost entirely as opposed to that is going to be the air density. Yeah. So the, it, right. the density is what's going to give 
resistance. Resistance. Force. So yeah. even if gravity is exactly the same, like if there's no yes. air resistance, yeah. it's going to continue to accelerate forever. So mm-hmm. terminal velocity is entirely dependent on um, the the fluid that you're falling through. So I'd it would <laughs> probably almost entirely depend on the terraforming of the planet. That's kind of where it's interesting is that this is the lack thereof of terraforming, right? This is the planet right. that has next to it, no terraforming. Oh, but there is so. there is a there is an atmosphere though. Yes, there is some form of an atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what dictates this, but I haven't looked into it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they they seem to have generated some sort of atmosphere, but not in, they haven't entirely solved all of the rest of the problems, obviously. As but seen not, by like our yeah, walk to the dragon. Not one you can stuff like that. survive inside of without No, yeah. Intentionally, which is also interesting. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Anyway, half the terminal velocity velocity of Earth as he enters the fray, everything changes as these are recognized as scarred as Braves, and he's more than okay with killing them as they left their own armies to die just the same in the Battle of the Ladon and everything subsequently from the rebellion that happened back in Iron Gold. Oh my god, it's all coming full circle. This Obsidian story is so wild. We follow this up with just an epic action scene where the pair fight side by side once again, cleaving through the Obsidians all to save these low colors. There's so much that happens. The ship takes off. Darrow throws Badlass through to skewer the pilot. The ship crashes in the distance that we're worried about. There's the dozen or so Obsidians that they fell in the meanwhile, which is it's just a lovely, it's a great action scene. Yeah, I I I love them. <laughs> and as we discussed, it's so unique compared to everything else and namely, I think the imbalance of razor wielders on each side. So we have two master level razor wielders against a litany of obsidian that are not wielding razors and that that creates a completely different dynamic from a lot of the large war scenes that we've seen in the past where Darrow is interacting, yes, with with a variety of infantry units, but the big action sequences are razor fights. And this is just numbers and strength. So it was fun. Yeah, this definitely, I mean, it, it definitely isn't just a razor fight, of course, or it isn't, this isn't just numbers and strength in this circumstance because it is something where he's also using the cannons, right, on, the, on yeah. the armor. I'm not suggesting that you, no, you're saying that. You're, I just mean like, that's true. this is a much more diverse fight in an interesting way because he is using all of the multifacets of the armor and kind of showing off the kit as it's described later, right? which is which is kind of a fun twist on things and in in this lupine mode so it's it's pretty neat all around i really really enjoy the scene i would also just give the smallest bit of pushback dark age has a lot of scenes that aren't just razor scenes they do involve razors at times but they aren't just no i i razors. i guess my point is there's always the risk in those scenes of a a razor wielding gold oh, clashing sure. with darrow yeah, and, I and yeah this lacks that entirely. Right. This is this feels like an open warfare scene without that mirroring of their capabilities on the other side. Yeah. 
There is that guy with a big fucking hammer, though. You know what I mean? Like this is there is there is that guy of whom yeah. shows up in breaking up the Palo 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 mover, absolutely smashes Cassius out of the air. And as we see with the damage to his armor, that was a serious blow versus a lot of the other things that hit our our folks. But not Cassius's. Cassius's is just scratched. Darrow's the one that gets the dent. Is he? Yeah. I thought it was and the other Darrow's way around. I thought Cassius had a hammer He's blow. so oh, pissed. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. Because the explosion that took out parts yeah. of the armor. Yeah, 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 you're right. Mm. Man, and he's like, that was a big fucking hammer. And we get so many good hammer jokes later. It's oh, so yeah. good. The hammer is my yeah. penis. <laughs> Sorry, you I, were Captain Hammer for Halloween I this weekend. I was Captain too, Hammer right? for Halloween this yeah. weekend. <laughs> yeah, such a good one. It's so good. If you, we did, you know, we, ha- we haven't been keeping up quite as well as we would like to be with some of our, our patron podcasts, but one of my favorite ones that we've ever done was our little podcast talking about Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. So that was a, you know, it was something that was really important to us growing up and something that we bonded over and became friends over. And yeah, very cool. Yeah, myself and our mutual friend Adam went as Captain Hammer and Dr. Horrible, respectively. So I'll put some pictures up on our Discord. Reprising costumes from high school, yeah. Updating and doing it better than high school. <laughs> I'll put the the side by side of the high school costumes and our current costumes because they're a lot better now. Because <laughs> it mine was literally a like, hammer logo printed off and like cut out and taped to my shirt in high school, and now like I got a hammer shirt. So like. And Adams is <laughs> a lot better too. Like it, it, it looked a lot better. <laughs> so, yeah, fair point. Fair point. Cool. All right. With that, let's hop into chapter fifty-five. Darrow, demigod. So we return to Darrow, of whom is preparing for another assault as more obsidians continue to pour in. Darrow concocts a quick plan, sticking the heads of braves on the end of his razor like olives, as they're described by Cassius. Of course, his mind is in his cocktail. Very classic of him (laughs) but then we proceed to have a conversation with scarda of whom is obsessed with darrow's kit and he uses this to exert his demigod status upon them it's it's fascinating to kind of harken back this way to them yeah of everybody involved within this scene i'm most surprised i think by scarda's reaction what do you mean he seems to bounce back and forth quite a bit between believing this is Darrow and assuming it's a trick. And I don't know if it's just gusto and and wanting to be the strongest leader that he can be despite what he believes, but he he flip-flops a lot throughout this section in interaction true. with Darrow. Yeah, definitely true to that point. He does flip back and forth quite a bit i think that the other the other thing that i would point to is not just that he kind of flip-flops a lot but that he does hmm, how do i want to say this he he flip-flops a lot but it it seems kind of like he's seeing a ghost right and he's like talking himself out of the ghost that's in front of him that's fair and as such he's also talking him out of his own decision to abandon the armies and like his role if this isn't actually Darrow, so, he doesn't actually have to confront that decision. 
Right. Exactly. So he's he's kind of just like using this. This is a moment. And he's like, oh, you're lying to me. It's clearly just the crazy armor that you have on looks like Sun Industries armor. And so that's how he kind of cons himself out of his own thing. It was, mm-hmm. It's kind of like an internal monologue registered externally. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of the way that I, I viewed fair. it, especially in this reread. Yeah, I can. It, it just can kind of has that. that. That sort of um, element to it. So, yeah, I I would definitely agree with you. I think that it also doesn't lend itself to being the most commanding or, you know, efficacious of leaders in this moment. Like he, you know, he has Everyone's a time rocked by persuading. Him. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. It's hard to uh, be a hardline leader when everybody is reacting the same way to this information. Right. Right. Absolutely. On first read through, I've been highlighting and like talking about all of these once I started switching over to the Kindle and like blasting through again. I read all this part of the book in the coffee shop, so we're still in coffee shop town. But I highlighted and I was taking a lot more notes near this end section because I was sitting and just focused on reading the book and taking these notes. So highlighted on my first read through before you bothered with moons, you liberated planets in my name. How far you have fallen. You know me, Skarda. You all know me. Or have you forgotten the man who put the razor in Ragnar's hand? And it's it is again, Darrow does it best. No one no one does it better than Darrow slash Pierce. But the the cadence of all of that perfect it almost is a perfect sonnet. Again, I think we talked about this a little bit last week mm-hmm. in one of the sections, but just that nice assonance in the middle of a in the middle of a sentence is just so good. Yeah. And beyond that, the quote is phenomenal. It's mm-hmm. it seemed to be convincing with such a strong start to this conversation. I I almost thought we'd get away without any fighting. Like I thought it'd be a, a way to convince them to put down their arms and and re up their oaths. Uh, not quite. Not quite. It was close, though. It seemed close. It was, it was really close. It seemed it seemed really close. And then he's like, ah, I can't be him, which I, you know, is obvious. But yeah, well, through this chapter, I, we continue. Also, it, it could have it could have gotten there without without bloodshed if the daughters didn't save the day, <laughs> you know, because the the shooting happens like they're talking, they're discussing and then the daughter's ships and snipers start firing. And that's what kicks off the violence. So I wonder if they were like a couple minutes behind, what would have happened? Yeah. Okay. I, I do. It. Correct me if I'm wrong, but don't a couple of them jump on him first and then they kind of call it off and then the daughters shoot, right? Mm, no, they're... Scarde is like reacting to something and then you hear like the the whirring of energy weapons. I might be I might be wrong, just, but I'm I, I've been I thought that's how it went. Yeah, no, so he does kill one. Just oh. just to clarify here. So Oh, because they they, he does, they assumed he was lying. Yes. They assumed he was yeah. tricking them, and like three of them like jumped into yeah, a couple a couple jump and he he really quickly dispatches them, of course. Okay. Which is why, like, that's kind of interesting because Sigurd, Scarda's son, tries to dissuade them, and that's kind of his 
his introduction to us in this story immediately in Darrow's perspective. So it gives us a little bit more. But ultimately, we see the blood and violence and that kind of proves again, you know, what he's trying to say. And then they kind of are able to come to that conclusion, maybe that you don't need to do that. Um, and kind of everything that's happening there. But then in the end, after that bluff is called, he it, they realize that he is indeed Tyr Morga, and they kind of come to terms with that. Takeaway that Sigurd has is very different. I mean, he obviously recognizes things like that last and like tries to kind of drive drive the point home here, especially before, you know, everyone gets uh, their, you know, their head blown, heads blown apart here in just a second. Yeah. And it really <laughs> becomes a brawl. I did like the commentary on him being in love with Thraxa and of course bad lass is what he notices. So Yeah. But it must be a gold trick, of course. Of course, definitely, definitely. Specifically targeted yeah. at him. Right. Yeah. So returning back to Earth for a moment here. Bad lass, yes, and in the connection to Thraxa, I really appreciate. I also just really like the way the bad last keeps getting brought up in the story. Like it is this big deal razor, which is kind of neat. Like we haven't we've we've talked about this, I think, previously. We've had like the Reaper's Blade and we've had these kind of these razors, but they've never felt so important as the name swords do here, which is just like bullseye fantasy thing is like, oh hey, here's your cool name sword. It's so cool. It's so yeah. Cool. <laughs> and I, I wonder if that that's trope to some degree. I mean it Maybe a part of it is Pierce Brown wanting to name some swords and make some big deal out of named weapons. But also, when we would have been interacting with named swords, it would have been against really big-time players in the in the society. And we didn't do that a whole lot. Not in a way yeah, that was fair. intimate enough. The only exception is maybe Lorne. And I could totally believe that Lorne would be the one person that didn't have a named blade. That didn't name his blade. And that would just use any blade. Any old blade. Yeah. I, I remember, didn't his have like the... He had something carved into the, his hilt. Yeah, he had that some... That made it specific to him. But some yeah. fineries and, and some embellishments yeah. on the handle. But I can't remember what that was. But he, yeah. The sentiment of naming a blade doesn't feel it's so abstracted Lorne from Lawrence. Yeah, yeah, totally, but he, totally with that. Whereas, like all of the other people that we're dealing with, were the the younger generation, the children of the truly important people that would have a keeps like a namesake family heirloom sword. So, yeah, Aja maybe. But we, we didn't really get intimately close with her to know like what her sword might be named. So No, yeah. That would that would maybe that would be like an interesting I mean, okay, so we do know that Aja's razor gets handed around, but generally they just are the person's blade, right? Like that's how they're typically described. They aren't prototypically given names. They're given descriptions. Everyone's is a little bit different, especially in the way that they like, you know, either have them made or identify with them, like Severo's having the jagged edges, which is just <laughs> Dude. Uh, not in addition useful others, when your blade's that sharp yeah and no, you're cool. attacking people right maybe if you're a razor wielding lumberjack <laughs> fair point you know that that is a good point i forget someone some youtuber made a point about like how not good chainsaws would be to kill people <laughs> like how actually bad <laughs> 
Yeah. But it's all about yeah. shock value and, and optics. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Halloween-y stuff, since we're recording this on Halloween once again. Uh, yeah. Came, came to mind. Present. So. As they finally settle after that brief show of force, one of the Obsidian's head erupts as it is blown apart by sniper fire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Feels pretty good. Fuck them. <laughs> just, uh, just when you thought that everything was going well, yeah. random obsidian gets picked off. This could have ended very badly for our dear friend Darrow in this instance. Mm-hmm. Even if there was zero risk of him getting caught in the crossfire, this evaporates any chance of him talking his way out of peace. Yeah, very true. Very, very true. He had no, like, even even if it was just one shot and then nothing else, like, what's Darrow and what are Darrow and Cassius to do but sit there and get pummeled by a bunch of obsidians yeah. to death? Yeah. Yeah. Not a not a pleasant look for any of them. Not at uh, all. Cool. So with that, we move into chapter 56, Dust Mice. We're then introduced to the Daughters of Ares as Cassius tackles Darrow out of the way. And their debut is not only, I mean, it's like head-explodingly good, right? <laughs> but I love, I love the view that we get from the literal fog of war as we're among this active volcano and no one can suss out where anyone is because of the heat that was established <laughs> so well earlier in Virginia's perspective that now we understand how ghost cloaks and sensors work. So it's so yeah. primo that we, that we get this. Very cool imagery all throughout this chapter. Again, another action-heavy chapter, so it's hard to not do more than breeze over this because it just speaks so well for itself. Um, but our pair fight a Kuan Hound and move to escape as quickly as possible. Yeah, the chaos in this scene is amazing, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, Darrow and therefore us readers slowly parses the information puts together what's happening and it's it's really well done and the slow reveal of how this battle is going that literal fog of war and figurative fog of war from for us being in this limited perspective is very well done and limited perspective in the sense that we're limited to what darrow can see not limited omniscient you know Blah 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 blah. I cut out. Blah, 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 blah. I cut out so much conversation about points of view in a couple episodes ago. <laughs> like twenty minutes of it. You did. You just like I cut it all out. out a conversation I about cut point it all of view. Out. It oh, wasn't. Man. It, it wasn't. Crazy. It wasn't useful. It was just you That's and I fair. going back and forth and in circles around like the idea of uh, deuter antagonist. I, I recall. Well, yeah. no, not yep. not deuter antagonist, but limited. Versus oh. limited omniscient. And yep. like you were talking about one thing and defining limited. And I was talking about how I thought limited omniscient was the full title of limited. And yeah, we were no, just going around right. in circles with that. So I just cut it down yeah. to literally nothing. I don't think it's included at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, well done. I mean, every once in a while, there's, there's arguments, especially because I know that that's a conversation that we've had before on the podcast. Oh, yeah. So it's like one of those that I'm like, I'm sure I, I would cut it out for sure. We don't yeah. need to relitigate that, um, <laughs> you know, in front of everyone. But yeah, mm-hmm. I do. I do agree with you. I think that it's also cool that we see like the return of the Kuan Hound, right? Like this is something that was brought up all the way back in Iron Gold and that we haven't seen again. So it's nice to kind of even just see this flash in the pan moment where it's there. It's bearing its awful fangs mm-hmm. with its 
Does it have six legs? Eight legs? It's terrifying number of legs as it chases up. I think it's odd. And it's not. But imagine if it was an odd number of legs. <laughs> seven legs. It's just got a How would dummy that work? leg where its tail is. Yeah. Mm. Or just kind of like a tripod. In its, its chest. Turn. Like coming out of its chest. Towards the so ground. imagine it. Imagine. God, the worst. In its chest. Oh, no. <laughs> but if you imagine it like splitting the buttocks, right? Like this <laughs> leg coming out with like right where like the butt is but instead of just like a normal foot that's forward it's it it's like two feet that are connected kind of like if you imagine like a dolphin's tail or like a merman's tail so they're spread out right so they're they're like they're like that but they're flat and then it uses it only when it has to reverse into a parking spot you know what i mean so like <laughs> instead of it just uses it to sidestep more easily i hate you I hate you so much. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. I I can <laughs> the Violet Carver who would make that would be so utterly broken, destitute, and poor. It wouldn't sell a single one. But yeah, I, in particular, the Kuan Hound, very funny. Yeah, I just I find it great. It's a nice little callback here. It is. It's um, I I had forgotten, frankly, that it was uh, even included a couple of books ago. Fair enough. I haven't watched this movie in a bit, but I love the visual of Skarda fighting these invisible ghosts, flinging one into the lava and seeming battering blood out of thin air, like just hitting blood. It reminds me immediately of the Northmen and sort never of the, the scene on the top of the volcano. Oh my God, it's so fucking good. Not that, not that like that happens, that like he's punching invisible people or something like that. That's not a part of the story at all, but just sort of the general brutality of the fight that happens in this moment very much reminds me of that scene. And again, this just showcases that mentality of every fight needs to be different that we talked about earlier with Pierce. So yeah. Yeah. I I'll admit that I cracked up a little bit when uh <laughs> Scarde made contact with nothing with, with an invisible force and like just a spatter of blood came pouring out of the air. I thought it was funny. It's, it's it's terrible. It's very funny. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's it's particularly brutal. It's funny. It's very did you have you watched The Boys yet? I've seen I know for sure I've seen the first season. I feel like cool. I've seen the second season. Very first episode. So this that all, oh, yeah. all that like this isn't even really a spoiler, right? There's a fight with Translucent, the invisible guy, right? And he the way that he reveals him over the course of the flight is because he gets beaten up and he starts spitting blood on him and throwing blood so that he can see where he is during the bobbing and weaving that happens. Mm-hmm. And it it has very similar, a similar vibe to me. Right. As to that, that fight, that moment. Yeah. So, but Dara manages through teaming up on Scarta with Severo to take him down at the knees. He hopes for this to halt the battle, but it doesn't because the Obsidians can't be stopped. And the Daughters of Ares also aren't listening to him because he isn't really their leader or commander. It isn't until Lyria shows up in the Archie that all seems to swing around and the man on the guns blasting these Obsidians who haven't stopped or put up their arms to bits. <laughs> Throughout this section, I also really like the little bit of tech reveal that we get. Mm-hmm. We've been teased with their gear, with their kit quite a bit and we we haven't gotten a lot of specifics about what they're able to do and this ability is not combat it's not that flashy but 
he's able to connect to both Severo and uh, Cassius's suit and amplify his voice through all three of them and and call out a command, which also goes unnoticed um, and unresponded to. <laughs> but I wonder what connection protocol they're using. Like what what version of Bluetooth is connecting all these WPA one. <laughs> It's WPA one. There's there are all kinds of desync errors all the time. It's an echo. It's an, too. it's an echoey yeah. response that he calls out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're using old like Jabber 1.0 for their chat. Oh it's no, really, it really barely works on a text format. And when you implement voice on it, it's just it's no good. It should have stayed, you know, should have stayed with iChat back in the day. Unfortunately, <laughs> rip iChat. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> for all four Mac users that listen to this podcast from the early two thousands, <laughs> iChat was great. You and I, iChat was you, great. You and I used to talk all on iChat four all people the time. who used iChat with me. Yeah, <laughs> that was before I had a phone. Uh, Same, but yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, big deal. But we we resolve this combat very quickly after the Archie shows up and people are taken prisoner. Of course. Predominantly, we we walk away with Sigurd, not Skarda, right? Skarda stays or is freed. Yeah, I, I don't remember what happens to Skarda. But the we obsidians are kind of left. Yeah, the obsidians are kind of left to go on their way, I believe, because they have to report back to Fawn. We don't want that to like go badly. Do they just drop um, him into the into the flowing lava pile? They don't. No, he's definitely alive. Confirmed, he's alive. <laughs> but yeah. I you know, know probably they should probably have though. Be. But Fuck we board the ship with our one prisoner, which okay makes sense. And we begin to see the civilians taken care of. We load everyone on, and we learn that Diomedes was on the guns, and that because of his parole and this trust that has grown between the two of them, he's kind of let free on the ship. Like he asks if he should go back to the brig, and there's that lovely moment where he's like, "No, help the civilians." Like you know, because yeah. that's what you'll do. You're not here to run away or pull anything. Yeah, I can trust someone for once. That top-notch gunning probably earned him that luxury. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But that said, helping the civilians as Mm -hmm. a raw. I hadn't thought about this until like later on in this section. What's that look like? How do how do the civilians react to getting help from Mm. their very oppressor real tangible yeah. like direct oppressor yeah i don't know i think that that's interesting especially to evaluate from a, a perspective of where these civilians are right like these are not liberated civilians kind of they are now actually in in an interesting way regardless of the way that we take the obsidians they've been freed because they were freed from the obsidians so that does lead to an interesting question of how they react and i would assume it wouldn't be crazy it's more the daughters that i would be the most yeah interested the daughters in are their different. view that's yeah that's different well, yeah but but i'd be more most curious on their view because i think to diomedes's kind of core point that he brings up in his speech in a bit here like the goal was to provide stability and so this probably isn't that far out of bounds for the raw immediately outside of the fact of how removed they probably are from helping mm. on the ground. And, you know, I, I, I know I we'll know. get into Tough that speech later, but. If I don't bring it up, then 
if it slips my mind for whatever reason, because I know I don't have it in the notes, but the idea of stability being the goal, the absence of that, while that is the contract that they've um, unknowingly entered into, the absence of stability makes them realize the oppression and the oppression is not the same as the, the absence of stability. So, right. Like the, his argument falls apart a little bit when you really dig into it and, and their reasons for rebelling is not just, Hey, you guys didn't do a good job of taking care of us. It's the entire underlying structure. That's yeah. Been no, built. he believes so. that to be their part of the social contract. Yeah. Right. Like that's, and we, we should definitely talk about that when we get to that quote. Right. Um, I just wanted to make sure I made mention of it yeah. before we got there because I am prone to Might forget things. It. <laughs> and I know yeah, I don't totally have get it, it written. Yeah, that is that is one of those components that I think is really interesting about his whole his whole discussion. And we're not that far away from it, so I'm excited to to kind of get into that. Um cool. We conclude this chapter with the intent to head to Europa to the deep and to Gion. this this campaign is always getting farther and farther away from mars isn't it just always just another another sphere yeah we keep going just like odysseus we we have to make a million stops and technically circle around home before we somehow and all the way back up at troy basically to then turn around and leave properly for home yep so yep exactly with that, we go to chapter 57, Lyria, Lamps in the Storm. I really like this chapter because I think we get to truly see Lyria shine on her own here as she stands out in the story. The conversation that she starts with Sigurd, trying to figure out anything she can about Volga, using Nagal in, in the original part to begin and kind of have that conversation, I think is just lovely. They revert to common, of course, and have that discussion. Um, and we also get a little bit of exposure to the tribal system that Fa uses to control information and loyalty within his circles as well. Yeah. Lyria has come a very long way from where we met her at Iron Gold. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think this chapter does a phenomenal job of emphasizing that change and evolution. It's still – she's still got a long way before she matches the stealth capabilities of Severo. As we'll come to learn <laughs> later on. But that said, that's a pretty impossible comparison for anybody. I I can't help but think throughout this conversation. She's talking to Sigurd and it's dumb. This is a dumb comparison. I don't know why I'm bringing it up, but I feel like it's important. So I'm going to. It's not. It's not even important. It's I, I was recently playing, again, Shadow of Mordor. <laughs> And, 2014's Shadow of Mordor. It's such a good game. It's such, it a, good such a good game. game. But the hierarchy of mm-hmm. these bands that Sigurd talks about and um, their relative closeness to Fa, or or I guess um, inverse closeness, the the more bands you have, the farther away you are. For whatever reason, like all I like think about is that that zoom out of the the officers of Sauron's army and the hierarchy therein. I don't know why that Yeah, for those of you who don't know, I just want to add a little bit of clarity here because it is also such a unique thing within any kind of a video game. The system that PJ is referring to is called the Nemesis system. 
the way that it is built is actually so unique that Warner Brothers games managed to patent it, which is fucking nuts. And then which they also prevents anyone it else again. Yeah. Other than yeah. Shadow of well, War. Well, they use yeah, they use <laughs> it on the sequel, but that's it. Which is it's crazy to patent such a, a system, system within a video game. It's such and a good system. They won the patent and then they haven't used it since. Anyway, core point being the idea is that the the game uses procedurally generated elements to create lieutenants within a hierarchy system that feeds up like a it looks like a familial tree almost. It's a hierarchy, right? And so in order to climb the hierarchy of people that you kill, you can kill their lieutenants underneath them to weaken them so they aren't available or otherwise and they have differing levels of communication up and down. There's so much that works so well in both of those games, especially that system. And it just sucks that it doesn't exist anywhere else because they that fucking patent it. expires next year, I believe. It should be pretty close to lapsing. So I'd be very curious to see what games begin to develop after that point using similar technologies. It might it might have lapsed now, being that it was in development well before 2014. Yeah. Um, so people might be using similar development styles now, but I regardless, point being is crazy. Yeah crazy very cool and totally reminiscent of that system for those of you who of whom haven't played those games or don't play games at all as that we found a number of our audience has not as i've <laughs> mentioned things so now i feel the need to kind of explain them sometimes mm-hmm. but yeah there's there's that for you yeah i also man i really appreciate Sigurd as a character he has this kind of quote and line and moment here as he's imprisoned and talking with Lyria and he's never talking down to her. I think that that's one of the things that I really appreciate um, is that he's never talking down to her, but he specifically addresses her and sort of a conversation where he says, we are all freaks. He says, and shows the sigils. They made us so as they've put out these low colors within, within the system. And I, I just, I, I really appreciate that between these two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, sort of that recognition. It's hard to remember because of their military prowess, and that's how we generally interact with Obsidian throughout this story, at least lately, last few books. It's hard to remember that they are almost as low on the totem pole as as Reds are. They are like what red, pink, and Obsidian are the three lowest colors. And brown. Yep. And brown's there too? Okay. Four, yeah, four low colors, red are the lowest, and then the other three are, yeah, low colors as well. It's hard to, hard to remember that with how strikingly, uh, capable they are in combat. They're literally used as the dogs of war, right? Yeah. Like that's sort of their intent. Yeah, it's fair. But yeah. even like greys don't feel as yeah. They're actually maybe literally the dogs of war, literally kennels. But well, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Never but mind. still, <laughs> I appreciated that quote from him, especially when you get into the daughters going forward. I've got a lot to say about their outlook on things and how they might think of things. And it's this is more in line with the way that the Republic seems to generally feel, whereas mm-hmm. the daughters have a little bit more of a. I don't want to say warped. It's not. It's not different, but it's a. Um, their focuses are a little bit more enhanced than than yeah. that of the Republic. Absolutely, and it is definitely 
more of a priority in that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We quickly glossed over what most certainly amounts to mass death and destruction on behalf of the obsidian wind that blows over the moon of Ilium, Callisto. We can see the impending destruction for Lauren's family's homeworld looming in the distance. Of course, in some regard, it makes sense for us to leave the inky black sea and returning to a sea almost without end that is the planet of Europa. So much death is getting just briefly mentioned kind of barely the fact that we're seeing mushroom clouds you know like just spells the certain doom that thaw atlas and lysander are all complicit to Mm -hmm. like that is what's complicit just well i mean okay at the very (laughs) least lysander is complicit too yeah yeah that's fair what i do appreciate though more than anything is her justification of why Ganymede hasn't been taken yet and it's it's hiding behind its shields. And in reality, mm-hmm. it's like Lysander petitioned for its uh survival. Yeah, sparing. It, 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 yeah. There's a term, there's a phrase that I'm looking for, but I can't find it. And whether or not it was going to go down anyway, who knows. But yeah, just the irony there i guess dramatic irony there but justification yeah. still makes sense it does it does definitely make sense and it is just it reminds me just in the way that it's painted in sort of a paragraph almost reminds me of the opening pages of iron gold in which we see sort of the the description of the destruction i believe on mercury but mm-hmm. yeah i think so so we learn about the deep and begin to build more resentment towards Chiana, which culminates very soon. We'll talk about her. I mean, I, you know, we, we don't necessarily need to talk about her right now, but Jesus. We see a massive fin of some of the creatures that burst from the sea and we're reminded that these are new wonders for Lyria's red eyes. And it's so, it's just so, I don't know, it's like heartwarming in an in a interesting way to see the galaxy through this sort of fresh lens of whom was used to the underground minds mars yeah i do i have to mention like between the interaction with sigurd and here we also get this little kid interacting with lyria telling her that she'll be safe and she doesn't have to look so sad anymore which is (laughs) yeah kind of a dick dick thing to say to a person but it's a little kid so it's fine but those leviathans are fucking bonkers, and I hope Five we get stomachs. to see yeah. Cyraxeries soon. Cyaxeries? Kyaxeries? Kyaxeries? Something like that? Whatever it yeah. is. Maybe, though. This motherfucker, 300 years old, dies of old age, washes ashore like a beach whale. What are they going to do? How are they going to get rid of the thing? <laughs> <laughs> How do they decompose this thing? Is that the how do they lift it away? Like I, I, they have spaceships, they have warships. It's probably easy enough. But could die in the middle of the ocean, and then (laughs) other ones could eat it. You know, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Or the spaceships, you know. But it sounds like it's going to be obsidian lunch soon, so Mm -hmm. it's a little bit different. Meats back on the menu, boys. Hearts back on the menu. No, they ate the whole of the dragon for the most part. Yeah, that was the, not just the a, ritualistic a part. Was the heart? 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The ritual is the heart, but like the whole whole rest of it is, mm. you know, eating the whole thing, the whole super beast. Turning it into um, armor. Right, right. And Caraxes, of course, has some has some history. It's a it's a general of sorts from the Middle East that reunited a big uh, area out there connected with sort of that area of I say sort of that area. You don't know an Iranian area and like united what most people consider like modern Iran, basically. Okay, gotcha. wasn't actually the person. I should say this was in BC, early BCs, but like that's where the name comes from. Gotcha. Cool. I yeah. figured it was some Roman general, frankly. Yeah, it's so, not, which is interesting, yeah. right? That's kind of I appreciated that because it's separated a little bit in the way that Europa is kind of separated from the rest. But you know. I feel like I've been doing a good job of like asking for when there might be a historical connection, and this one I just glossed over because I figured it was it's the same. it's minor <laughs> enough that it's like I don't think that it's. You know, I it's one of those things where it almost I, I appreciate the namesake and I'm curious if there was a reason beyond this that stretches. He's important because he interacts with a lot of Greece in history, and I'm sure that that's part of the reason that Pierce chose to include it, especially from a heritage that really respects that heritage. But yeah, I'd be I'd be curious why he didn't choose something like Scylla instead. You know what I mean? Or like go down or not Scylla, but go down any of yeah Scylla or like go down any of the other monstrous names from the yeah. Odyssey. I feel like Scylla's been mentioned within this story already. Not not as a direct like name of something, but it's been referenced. So Yes, like the monster Scylla has been referenced a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, like the gaping maw of Scylla and stuff like that. So But we kind of end this chapter with a lovely conversation between Lyria and Severo, given that he thinks that she isn't useless. We get a little lesson on these Leviathans and Syraxes, the biggest of them. What do you make of their earnest conversation and this slide towards friendship that we see between the two, especially as it pertains to Severo's legacy as Ares? What do you see brewing in our little ex-warlord? I think this is a really complicated question, especially considering Severo's perspective and motivations were so focused on getting home so the news of his son's death probably wouldn't have that same i wish i had chosen to go home effect that it would on darrow if if he was in the same situation you know what i think this does is open up Severo to uh, confronting some tangible change as a direct result of being the leader of the rising um, on a personal level. Like, yeah, had had he not done that, had he not been involved in the rising the way that he was, Lyria would never have been anywhere close to Victra. Um, Mm -hmm. Conversely, Victra would have never opened herself up to being helped in childbirth. And hopefully he sees that as a positive, a net positive, even through the tragedy. So I, I, my hope is that this situation and him reflecting on it makes him realize that even though something tragic happened, it was still, there, there were still good things that 
bled up to it. I don't know. I, it's hard to articulate that. It's such a complicated situation, but there are there there are glimmers of silver linings within the tragedy. Yeah, and I I think to your point, glimmers of silver linings. There is this sort of to Severo at the very least, it becomes clear that she managed to befriend his wife at the very least enough to like be there for the childbirth and be there for everything else and be there her there with her through grief, which I think is massive as far as a as far as a friendship goes, especially so sort of that appreciation. There's no way he doesn't understand how aggressively independent Victor is. Yeah, right. So right. the fact that anybody like even if it was it's astonishing that anybody would break down those barriers and it's this girl so yeah this girl of whom he had written off effectively as like especially in kind of preamble as abducting their children right like being the one of whom did that right and this is i think the useless thing is a thing for him to like use as a guise of course that is his sort of clever several way but i think that this kind of feels like him coming around to a to a potential friendship and for our our buds among the archie to be real friends as a as a group of four or five rather with Ore. yeah all right with that we get into chapter 58 lyria europa our flight descends further onto Europa, and there is much to come beneath the surface as we head for Athena. But before we get there, we have another interaction with Cassius from Lyria's perspective. He implores about what she's going to do and continues to jape about the hammer. They spit shake and part after a lovely moment. I think that heartfelt compliment at the end of this interaction is really sweet. The, her, her saying something along the lines of him being i don't i i should have put the quote in i don't remember she he he seems taken by it and genuinely complimented and she says or she thinks is this a go on now before i keep you no line that he says back no before that like what what she says to him the i just wanted to tell you like i don't think people say this enough but i see it yeah yeah i i I just think you're a good man and you have a huge heart and I don't think people say that enough. I yeah. just wanted you to know that I see it, Bologna. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And that that's sweet, but also the I'm filled with an urge to protect him and his too fragile heart. Mm. Lyria. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Come on, girl. Yeah. Too sweet. And very sweet. Very sweet. It's interesting because it is, it is very sweet. It is definitely like they're... I'm curious as to what you think of it as, as as far as to how you read their, I don't want to put too fine of a point on it, but like relationship mm-hmm. and the whole, like, obviously they're not like, what is it? What do you, what do you read it as? I don't know yet. You, you've, you've pushed me in this direction a couple different times. Every, every single time. Every uh, single time. Actually, I think. I still, do, I still don't quite know how to read it. It's. They're clearly close and closer, I think, even than what's being revealed in this story, given some of Darrow's internal monologues and and thoughts. Like, there's my girl when the Archie and Lyria come up. Like, they've they've taken to each other very strongly. Mm -hmm. I still don't think I'd go as far as saying that it's romantic in nature yet. 
but I don't think I'd entirely rule that out as a possibility going forward. They've laid the groundwork for that to be a viable path, I think. Sure. Yeah. And again, I don't, I, by relationship, I truly didn't mean, like, I know, I know, I know, like seeing each other. I know, I know that you didn't. I just want to clarify. I'm mm-hmm. trying to make sure that it's not leading by any stretch. Um, but it does feel like there is a tangible connection between them. And it's not even that it needs to be anything else, but that it is, it is something in which they genuinely see each other as the people that they are, which I think I appreciate most. Yeah. From their connection. I mean, regardless of how or if or what it manifests as. Yeah, this is, if this is a relationship to be pursued, this is a relationship that for Cassius does not include the prestige of house that was so important for a lot of the the romantic pursuits that were expected of him in the past. So it's it's something entirely new. I think as far as as far as what we've experienced from Cassius Cassius's point of view. Yeah, I I also think that it doesn't have to be that. You know what it I mean? Doesn't. Like I don't no, think that it has it to totally be totally doesn't. And it, I I don't Yeah. I don't think you're saying that either. Yeah. 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 It it is a um, great friendship. Um mm-hmm. It is a very fast growing friendship. Um yes. Yeah. But they seem to really mesh. <laughs> yeah, they. I would. I would almost argue that they seem more like kin than anything else. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. there's sort of the the sort of. I would call it like a schoolgirl crush that kind of comes off of Lyria in waves in different moments. I um, I could see that, but honestly, I'd say that Lyria comes across as the more platonic one. I would. Hmm. Like he, she, she has some moments of smittenness, but um, all of the action to the relationship is on Cassius. Okay. I, I can, I can see that. I feel like he's my perspective. I think that he's just being himself a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And this is really, in a lot of ways, no different than how he acts around a lot of people. That's but fair. He only has so many close friends, right? And so this is a close sort of friendship. She is reacting this way, A, because she's never really been super close friends with a gold. The closest we could probably argue is, I mean, okay, Victra, Victra but probably more accurately, Cabax is as close as we get. Yeah. And so this is kind of her like first coming to understand that golds are different or maybe second reaffirming, you know, that golds are different than what she believed. So I, I have a tough time divorcing. Like, I think that it is kind of school girly, but it's also just because it's new and different. Like that's not, that's not to say that she is actually enamored or that there's anything as far as like, it's just that she has that attention even to begin with. And she's idolized and viewed that attention as more, her entire life, you know, and the way yeah. that she's brought to believe golds are. So that's fair. I think that's what I'm trying to kind of get at. Right. Like it's not, it's not actually like a school crush where it's like, Oh my God, I want to see sneak like secret notes and whatnot. More like it, it just ha- is something that is fresh and new and different than anything else that you've experienced in life up until that point. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Okay, cool. Yeah. I hope that gets to the heart of it because I, 
Yeah. I don't think that at this point we have anything that tangibly points towards like a relationship no. outside of that sort of reactions. I think that they're very close friends. And I think that this solidifies in a big way that both that note and sort of the conversation, the joke that comes of the, you know, I flew the Archimedes on IO. I and he says, my good lady, I mean this with all my heart. That was not flying. That was just not crashing. <laughs> Which is yeah. so good. And like this whole con this whole conversation, you're a condescending pricklick, only to my favorites. <laughs> and like there's just these like nice little punch rebuttal, punch rebuttal that are just it, it's it's a perfect one-two jab. Yeah. I agree. <sighs> yeah. It's excellent. But they do spit shake ultimately on uh, on what's going on here, and it's it's solid. So I appreciate. Um, Diomedes, on the other hand, is a completely different conversation as to what happens to him and his relationship with the Reds in these moments. He is not treated with any respect, despite trying to be as helpful as possible. To all the degrees that we talked about before, this absolutely makes sense. Like this is should not necessarily come as a shock to us, um, as you brought up previously. But yeah. Despite all the best intentions, he's still that master that holds those chains. And what do you make of like Chion and her take on society and the difference between our two red lasses? I mean, just to comment on Diomedes before getting into that, this would be like walking Aja into Tinos and expecting oh. her to be. <laughs> yeah treated that's that's with any modicum of respect like it's it's not exactly a one-to-one analogy but it's pretty close it's fairly reasonable yeah yeah i would agree yeah so i get his his acceptance (laughs) here i can't remember if that's right here but as soon as chion snubbed darrow's handshake i knew shit was going down like First read through, mm-hmm. I didn't know what was happening. I, di- I didn't know if it was like her um, acting rebelliously or or her or this being a read into the daughters of Aries in general, like as a whole. But I, I could definitely tell that this was a damn cold welcome um, based on that. I can't remember if that was right here or earlier or later or whatever but yeah there's there's some stark differences between lyria and Chion. she in she, she carries herself very brusquely and with a lot of confidence which is admirable and great and not something that has been instilled in general red society within the core so i think that's something that Lyria probably looked up to and she mentions that um, since Chion came on board, she wanted to meet with her um, and then upon talking to her, which I think is later on, she liked her less and less and less. But I think that that air of confidence is what the Reds tend to lack. PJ, I just want to I want to add in just a layer here before you continue on Chion. You almost verbatim quoted what Theria said in order for the record. Here's here's the line. Uh sounded by any red who could or would go toe-to-toe with obsidians. 
PJ starts talking. I had wanted to meet Chion as soon as she came aboard, yet I find myself disliking her more and more with every passing second. No, I, that I, is literally I, that's like what I was verbatim. trying to quote. No, I know. Well, yeah. I, you, it didn't seem like you were trying to quote it. It seemed like you were just trying or, to that's cite what that I was part. You're like, I think it happens later. Evoke. But you, you nailed yeah. it because I thought I thought that you were separating those further, and I was like, no, oh. those, that's back to back, buddy. Like, yeah. Anyway, I just I didn't know if I that I didn't know if that I was giving you credit. The, I, didn't, I didn't know if that quote was in this section or if that was later. Oh, it on. is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 She. I was just trying to give you credit. She's surly and she, but but she's confident, and mm-hmm. that makes for a really um violent dynamic between her and Lyria ideologically. It's interesting. So I, I kind of want to bring this to a, a slightly different comparison, but I, I think of like, this might be getting a little bit too much into Athena, but Chion reminds me a lot of Harmony. And Athena obviously is meant to be evocative of Ares, right? Oh, you froze for a second there. We're still good? Okay. Oh, uh, we're still Minor good. Yeah, you, you froze too okay. and it, cut, cut, it cut. caught back up. Woo! All right. But like Athena is evocative of Ares, of course, and Chion is evocative of Harmony. And so there's just this note of like, there's also that leads to this like subtle undertone of like, are all rebellions the same? Is there always this like sort of fighty underbelly that like you have to sort out? And I part of me feels like that's part of what Pierce is kind of pointing to with the the similarities here. Kind of. But at the same time, I'd almost argue that Athena is closer to Harmony than she is to Ares. Ooh, I so disagree with that, but we'll really? talk about that when okay. we get into the Athena okay. chapter. Um, Sounds good. I, I fundamentally disagree, yeah. But um, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there for sure. But I think the Chion and Harmony comparison at the very least works I told, pretty the, closely. Ares is to Harmony as Athena is to Chion. Totally. Yes. Yeah. But I think I think that second set is shifted farther to one direction. It definitely is for reasons that we'll yeah. talk about. But yeah. I, I also think that it is a little bit even comparing and I did this as well, but even comparing Athena to Ares is incorrect in my own assumption mm-hmm. or my own opinion. It just obviously made the analogy. Question. Yep. Are we bringing up anything from Sons of Ares, the graphic novels, in this oh, you, discussion? You'd best believe that I nabbed okay. my, my book forbidden song. Let, I know that Let's go we, ahead and make a comment right here. Sure. If you plan on reading Sons of Ares Volume 3 and you haven't forbidden yet, song. it will probably be spoiled for you within the next couple chapters of us discussing. We're, we're going to talk about it. Yes, or at the yeah. very least, we, we will have a little bit of an open discussion. We also haven't talked about this yet, which is crazy, and we should do that sooner we than should. later because we need to get that episode done. <laughs> Realistically, you know, thinking about things, we maybe should have just done that on Sunday, but, you know, here we are. Now we're yeah. here. That probably would have been the thing to do instead of trying to... Anyway, I digress. Hmm. But, Moving moving back here to the story at hand that we have, we make our way onto the submarine, and as we get down to the water, the boys are latched in nice and tight 
into their holds. They begin to slowly lose their senses. I love the way that Severo's described as like finally calming down. <laughs> like not being shaky in his chair. Like actually like just sitting normally. <laughs> That's a yeah. state of, of losing senses. Um, but uh, their actions become more languid. And then outside we see the chains as we're brought forward. The cyclocene has fully taken them down in this moment and Chion beats the ever living hell out of Darrow. Lyria drops her pistol due to Ori's protestation of not shooting allies or shortly thereafter, after this escalate picks it up and shoots it twice into the air. Just you, you can just kind of taste this resentment, especially in this moment as none of them stop this sort of beating that they really have for the founder or one of the founders of our rebellions here. Yeah, this is, this is pretty not good. This is I, I I'd classify this as bad for our friends and uh, protagonists within this story. Mm-hmm. Why can't these people just blindly forgive a man who uh, abandoned them and allowed them to be tortured and allowed for the murder of thousands and tens of thousands and potentially hundreds of thousands of their brethren? Uh, it seems like a pretty reasonable ex- expectation to just kind of let him go. Jeez. I don't know. That said, I have I have questions about this gas. I want to bring up real quick. Let's talk about the gas for sure. I said cyclocene. That is the gas that exterminated the population of Earth. It is actually or that yielded everyone unable to have children that was used way earlier on in the in that it's mm-hmm. seronocene gas. Anyway, we can continue. Yeah, it, it doesn't really matter specifically what it what it was thanks for the clarification I, no most, but, most but people what, would give a shit but yeah. what does matter is mm-hmm. the fact that they have been able to produce chemicals that affect colors distinctively which is mm-hmm. that on an extreme level, it's the biological weapon that has been maintaining peace between the rim and the I'd core. Be. Yep. Yep. I'd, I'd be. If, if, if the daughters are able to produce a, a gas that affects only one color, like they are, like they clearly have, like we, we've seen proof that that's exactly what this does. What's to say that they haven't entirely reproduced I'd me. I, I think that it's more or the don't have the capability. Right. I, I think that th- hmm. there's there are functional questions of how Idemy works and how quickly it works, right? Versus a gas that is more like isolated and targeted, right? Okay. I, I think that that's really kind of that'd be my yeah. riposte question, right? Is that this is but it does it does beg the question. We haven't seen a whole lot of like targeted bioweapons at all up until this point. Yeah. So So that development is interesting, and I think it does parallel I to me in a way that I hadn't really thought of. So maybe they're developing their own and then it are we moving to a nuclear standoff? Yeah. Could be. And that's the result of the series is peace through Cold War. That sounds satisfying. <laughs> With the, but the racists on one side and everyone else on the other. Oh boy, I I couldn't imagine that. Of course, being the end, but you know that. Yeah. 
tis tis a thing potentially um we then after this sort of rackus beating that happens here uh get the reveal of athena in her helmet and as the chapter ends it's time for justice at last as she says yeah this is she seems genuinely horrified by chion yeah beating oh, the yeah. Shit out of this Darrow. action is not good yeah yeah i was surprised by that hmm i i figured it was all coordinated <laughs> I don't think it's coordinated at all. But Uh, she does know, she knows a lot about what's going on on the ship. Like later on, she's talking to Darrow and mentions like, oh, so that's why you didn't struggle on the, on the submarine. So like she's either watching or getting, getting report from, from people on what's going on in a very, very detailed way. So based on that, I would have assumed she'd be aware of what was going on and it seems like what she's actually horrified by is the beating that Chion uh unleashes upon Darrow. Administers. Yeah. Yeah, not not that like the gas or the the sort of subversion or like the all of that doesn't play differently than I think Athena wanted. I think it's more the beating and sort of the taking advantage of the vulnerable. Because it seems like the intent is to move into chapter fifty nine and and talk about him being in the cell, right? Like that seems to have always kind of likely been the intent. Uh, it's the beating that seems, yeah, incorrect. I also appreciate that this doesn't happen within Darrow's perspective. This would be a very easy Darrow hop perspective for him to get drowsy and then beaten the shit out of. I think it's way more interesting to watch it from Lyria's point of view and also see Ore struggle, right? And to like really be able to focus on that part of the struggle, right? It's it feels more like a TV camera point of view almost in this scene. Totally. And you almost forget that you're in Lyria's perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Almost. With that, we move into chapter 59, Darrow, Athena. We flip back to Darrow alone in a cell without any of his belongings and enter into a conversation with Athena. She's holding in the moment his copy of Path to the Veil, of which was Ares copy originally. Interesting to see that this comes full circle, but we enter into conversations that carry a lot of weight as we understand the full impact of Darrow's actions in the previous stories, including the end result of the attacks on the docks of Ganymede and everything that's kind of flowed since then. Um, there's there's a lot here. There is a ton here. This conversation in in entirety seems to highlight the ideological differences between Groups that primarily agree with each other, which is mm-hmm. a really fun thing to break down. Yes, Athena and the really daughters cool of Ares thing. at large tend to and seem to hold um, a view on the color hi- hierarchy um, that is much more vitriolic and rebellious than the core sentiment. Um, not to say that the core isn't rebellious or vitriolic against the hierarchy i'd say they are very rebellious against it and very vitriolic towards it but this is this takes it a step further and um maybe i'm reading into it differently or too much but um it it feels like more of the fledgling rising sentiment of golds as opposed to this matured living within a society that golds are included inside of it's 
it's hard to really pin it down, but for whatever reason, it feels more raw and more angry than than what we've seen from the Republic or what we've, we currently experience within the Republic. It definitely is. So I want to I want to agree with you, but I want to just have this sort of conversation around that just a little bit and kind of give my perspective here. I do think that it is a little bit more raw in particular, of course, because of the wrongs that we'll talk about for most of the rest of this chapter. Right. There's one particular line that points to me that it's not really as different. Like, okay, so if we've got a sliding scale from the Republic at present to the like rising to a the like daughters of Aries in the middle and then to harmonies, whatever the hell I forget what they're called on the, on the other red side, hand. red hand, the red hand is the extremist version of that group, right? Like that is the, the absolute extremist version. This version I think is just was almost on the brink of completely sliding back into this sort of Republic fold, but there's still a rebellion underneath oppression, right? The reason I say that is because of the whole quote that happens around the the two energy beams traveling at each other, right? So I'll read the quote a little bit later, but specifically right after that, she says, I pulled us from the brink of hatred. I pulled myself from the debris you made of my life. Now the stir your presence has caused, the hatred it has awoken. Well, the daughters demand justice and I am but their will. Yeah, And that is the reason that I think that they had moved past it by and large. But now that he's actually in their presence, it's physically different because they have this sort of chance that changes that thing. You know I what think, I mean? So I, I think feel like there's another, closer. There's another quote that feeds into this and maybe counters that idea a little bit. But their call and response at the beginning of this section of Ares fought, Athena fights. That was last chapter, but yes. Yeah, it was last chapter, but it was still this section. We didn't yeah. address it. And but, but oh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the sort section. of the, right. the mindset they're in. They're still in the midst of a of a rebellion as opposed to having completed a rebellion and are Ares leveling. also is dead in their mind and eyes, too. Yeah, that's the other that's side. That's true. So that's true. That would that would be my take on that read is like there isn't a proper Ares and hasn't been really since. But mm-hmm. I definitely I I totally see what you're saying, though. It does feel like and there are definitely ideological differences. That's not to say that there aren't. And there are also reasons for those ideological differences. And I think that we do at this point. And part of the reason that the story is so interesting, especially with this little chapter and this little tuck in that we have inside of the section, is that we see the way that those things span. Right. Especially all the way out on that extremist scale with the red hand into the Republic, you know, as a, mm-hmm. as a sliding scale. Right. Yeah, it, it is. It is really interesting. I hadn't thought about, I hadn't thought about that sort of political spectrum nearly as closely. So thanks for pointing that out. Yeah. In, in this little bit of chapter, we also get the realization that she's captured the Archie, um, yep. <laughs> based on her having the path to the veil, his copy, Darrow's copy of it, mm-hmm. which he did not bring with him. Which I thought was a really fun, clever reveal of that information. When she doesn't even like mention it, he just knows. Like, oh, she's got that book, which means she has my ship. So there's a lot of subtext here, and I'm very curious as to your thoughts. We've mentioned the Sons of Aries comic that we haven't talked about. I have to I have to pose it, and I did technically pose it as an end of the week question that I saw that you didn't answer, but I feel like it makes sense to bring up here. 
do you think Athena existed in the Sons of Ares comics? What do you mean? Do you think that Athena was one of our named characters from the Sons of Ares? I thought it was explicitly mentioned. I don't think so. The girl that you're thinking's name is not Athena. Bree's sister? Is that yeah. who you're mentioning? Or who you're thinking? Rihanna yeah. is her yeah. name? Exactly. Rihanna thought, is I, wearing the mask of Athena, but her name is never mentioned as Athena. No, but she right? she puts on a, an Ares mask at the end of this. Or at the end of the... She, like, she puts on the, the spiked helm at the end of this graphic novel, doesn't she? So She puts on a black one from like Fitchner uh, has a red one? So she switches from, like, her curly braided hair that she's wearing for the entirety of the graphic novel to one um, Harmony is given her name here as well, which is great, of course. But she's got sort of the red hair, but she doesn't wear a spiked helm. She kind of stares down her old mask before kind of stepping out and away. I don't know where I got the idea that, like, I, I was just certain that this was her. And I thought it was textual within Sons of Aries. PJ, it's not to say that it isn't. Right. That's <laughs> here's here's my here's my like my conspiracy brain says that that is so likely. Right. That it is so likely that Rihanna is uh, Athena and mm-hmm. especially with all of the subtext about the impact that Darrow has had on her life and the people that she's lost. It seems and very the fact clear that, that that is like several will never be hurt in her presence. And several will never be in her presence? What do you mean? Several never be hurt within her presence? Oh, yeah. Right, right. And that that could also just be the connection immediately to Ares. But I also think that it is. I think that that's another direct connection. The one thing that points me away from Athena being Rihanna, the only thing that points me away is her description of her life beforehand where she describes her experience as being a red and specifically doing what type of mining it's. I suppose I came from a mine like yours. Ours floated over Jupiter. I was sorted as a girl since I was not chosen to be a breeder. My breasts were cauterized shortly after puberty. I was selected to be a gas fly to gather helium from Jupiter on air lawn wings. Red. I've never been let red nor gray nor gold. I am a human being. You may look at me with eyes of the masters, but you will not sort me according to their inhuman labels. And I'm that is that is my only my only note of skepticism on the whole idea of that not being a direct comparison, which is also why I had you weeded ahead of time beyond just the incredible story and ending is because I specifically wanted to talk about this. Yeah, (laughs) I I don't know what it was, but for whatever reason, it is Rihanna. I I think it is. I'm I'm pretty. Mm hmm. This kind of gives away that it's not revealed inside the book, but like, (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's Rihanna. Yeah. And like, yeah, there, I feel like I I could very easily forgive any overlap in descriptions and, and overwriting of descriptions between this, the novels and the graphic novels. I would just. Yeah, the, I think the yeah. description especially to me matters a lot less because I think that the sort of graphical depiction is one of interpretation, especially as they vary so much from graphic novel to graphic novel. But in particular, I think that they kind of describe all of these reds as squatter than the others. So, 
you know, there's there's that around and never seems squat in any of the novels. But maybe that's just a physical compression thing. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's unclear. But Fitchner, but I'm a believer. Fitchner met Bryn in uh, one of the Rim planets. Like that's where he was. Oh uh, yeah, working. near Jupiter. Yeah, I so, would say it was. And their their physique brains. within the story is because of their oh, shit. Uh, the planet that they hail from. Right, the gravity. So yeah, yeah. The even if that gravity. wasn't like a thing that was described within the graphic novels, I think it's fair enough to not put too much weight into that unless the story is lying to us very actively athena cannot be rihanna the rationale is is that bryn and rihanna are both from triton which is a neptune moon okay not a jupiter moon however i do think it is very likely that when we get into the judgment scene, that while Rihanna might not be among those, or might not be Athena, I think she is among those that are behind masks, behind Athena. Okay. That feels like how it has to be. I, I, can't, I can't think of any, any other rationale. And in the end of the comics as well, uh, Rihanna kind of walks away from the whole thing. But... You know, I don't think that that means that she walks away from the rebellion necessarily on the whole and likely probably turns back at some point. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. PJ, I was with you. I was 110% with you. And then I just spent two minutes <laughs> and disproved myself. Fair. Oh, also, she is completely skin colored wrong for the record, too. I hadn't even thought about it, but like, She's genuinely described as having dark black skin and obviously her seven fingered hands. So, well, those are all artificial. Yes, the hands are, but the skin is not right. right. Okay. Yeah. PJ, mm-hmm. I was entirely of the same mindset. I can confidently tell you, as was Hallerpod, we've been talking about this for a while, actually, since I read this in that cafe. We <laughs> almost immediately had this conversation in the car on our way to Tulsa. So, Yeah. There is um, still always the possibilities of deep cover a la Screwface. Sure. Yeah. Potentially. Like disconnecting as much as possible. Or I more fervently believe this was always kind of my fallback inside of those conversations that there are these people that come up in the judgment a little bit later and that she is just one among the many yeah. back there. Yeah. That so. would track. That would make sense. Yeah. That feels definitely like a very high possibility mm-hmm. so yeah all right cool moving forward we find from our conversation with athena that the ships are truly real athena has a number of lovely quotes and i'm going to try to keep it all brief as many of this week is split up over the our next two scenes this scene and the next one actually realistically but there's there's a lot kind of going up here going on here she says life is easy to imagine as a path but it it is moments like this when I think of it as a particle accelerator. You, the daughters, your two high-energy beams traveling close to the speed of light before finally colliding. That collision will lay bare the essential building blocks of your nature and ours. And in particular, for most of this chapter, I really appreciate Athena's collective speech. 
It gives a lot of gravitas to her as an actual figurehead of the people, not someone of whom actively sought power, but was instead instilled with power, authority, or sort of as the will, as she cites otherwise. So she is not... She was selected, not gifted, or like not... Yeah. She didn't seek this role. It, it, The quotes bring a lot of perspective to that sort of subtle difference of ideology that we've been talking about a little bit. Those essential building blocks of each of their origins and motivations and kind of allowing those to really be scrutinized and compared. The While uh, what we've been dealing with in the core as titled is a republic, a democratic republic, I, I assume, I, I believe they're elected officials. Um, it's definitely a republic and they are, yeah, they are elected, I believe. Yeah. This seems to present more like a true democracy with a representative uh, figurehead, but um, primarily a raw democratic uh, governing body. Yeah, yeah, more like a, it definitely is a democracy with a mouthpiece, right? Like this is not a, the, tough to say. The, the mouthpiece doesn't have any power more than the individual voting members. In many ways, it feels like a tyranny without the, in, in like in the, I say, I say tyranny and I mean it in the Roman sense of the word, which is to say that like, or dictator rather, not tyr- not tyranny but a dictator in the sense that it is a uniform power that's given to her, but it's not that she always needs to wield it, right? Mm-hmm. Like she still respects the Senate, but predominantly seems to be in charge of military action at the very least, like moment to moment calls seem to fall on her shoulders, but otherwise, you know, democracy. So I feel like in the Roman form, it is a dictator democracy, dictator driven democracy. Okay, which is kind of like what the society is structured like, ostensibly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there's that's more of an oligarchy because those members aren't elected, and like oh, the right. idea of this that's democracy true. is that everyone has a vote. But I, I understand where you're coming from. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And these people aren't elected because it feels true democracy, or feels like true democracy where everyone has input. So. Mm-hmm. There's the fourth understanding of which she quotes. He quotes right back to her, of which I think is great. The supreme good is the wind in the deep mines. It flows through rock around people and over land. The wind is oblivious to these obstacles, though her path would not be the same in their absence. When you smell rust on the breeze, hear the echo of tools in the darkness, smile and be glad. The path is upon you and you upon it. All you must do is walk. And this is a lovely quote for a number of reasons. This is very taoist and also very stoic which is why they obviously overlap and there's like this this school of thought that says did one borrow from the other they seem so identical in a lot of different ways which is why i think that darrow also gravitates towards this other thought process which feels like it's echoing things like the obstacle is the way as far as a a quote goes from aurelius but totally totally echoes that but yeah that we we I, I feel like we did a pretty good job of talking about the comparisons and overlap of Taoist thoughts in one of the first episodes of this book, I believe. Yeah. 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 
I, I just really appreciate that we have like a full understanding, you mm-hmm. know, on the page. Some of these are very short, but this is like a full. It reads very similarly to meditations or to also the Tao. So, yeah, Athena gives it to Darrow straight though. Here, he's to be tried for his crimes as those in these very cells and the names adorning her arms ha- were unable to receive. If he's found guilty, he will be executed using a hosta made for him named Pyrrhus and emblazoned with a forbidden song. And there's just this quote that she says that is very clearly like it just it it hurts so badly as far as lines go and feels so cutting, but the quote, "We are your debris, Darrow. We matter." is <sighs> Something that he hasn't really had to reckon with yet, which is the rest of this week is reckoning with his his choices. Yeah. And the Reaper in a big way. <laughs> totally. Yeah, that 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 quote cuts a little bit. The sort of fire bearer translation of Pierferos is is one thing. But is there any other historical or literary significance to that name? There is some biological significance. The Pyrophorus is a name of a beetle that spits fire acid. Hmm. Yeah. I think that's what they're talking about. Yeah, but I don't think they specifically cite the beetle, do they? No. no. Yeah. I don't think or that's actually what fire. they're talking about. Oh, oh, I get it. You're making a joke. And yeah, I'm making fun of real, you. For real. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that's sort of the name or the, the, the species or genus the genus not species genus of fire beetle is a fire forest yeah okay the reveal that he's going to be tried is pretty heavy but not entirely unexpected it feels like the logical sort of way this interaction was going to go after everything got after everything turned to shit in the submarine so makes sense tough not to see exactly how this went going exactly how it went you know kind of it has that vibe and we'll we'll get to more of sort of the reactions there of course later but she returns the key from pax back to darrow leaves and darrow is left with nothing but his rage we then see the weeper return in full force his past self manifest in his rage his thoughts of donning the twilight helm and killing them all and then it passes and he's left sick at those thoughts. Um, it seems like a pretty reasonable response to me, given the history of his being chained and imprisoned. True. But there's also the prospect of everything that he's been working towards crumbling at the hand of what should be an ally other than his whole betrayal and uh, the murder of many thousand of their people i don't know it i'm glad he's able to kind of rein it in and reel everything back and and not be the reaper beyond that brief outburst so good on him for that that would take a lot of restraint for most people yes it it definitely does take a lot of restraint i want to do kind of two points here I keep equating this to the docks of Ganymede and like saying that that is sort of the result of this. This isn't fully the docks. It's it's an embodiment as well of the sort of consequence of giving over the names to Romulus. 
but ultimately that stems from also the docks and the decision they're in to burn and, yeah, they're, and sort of they're, that full negotiation. Right? It's, like it's all both. part of the same yeah. thing. And it's it, the damage to the rim. What we saw I just want to make sure in the moment here. was the docks. Yeah. And that's why it seems to be the most that's yeah, the most tangible the torture, it's the most top of mind thing for what we've been privy to up until this hollow cube that we get exposed to right yeah and the hollow cube gives us a little bit more there and we'll, we'll definitely talk about that in the moment but i really i i definitely see and understand your perspective of like the rage and like all of that being understandable as far as feeling betrayed but for me i see it as like a this is darrow reckoning with the way that he would have dealt with this in the past right like this is him realizing his mistake in action um and and coming to terms with it like he reacts in the same way that he has it's the defensive reaction he's been attacked again in the same sort of way and he wishes that he could break out of it but then he realizes that this is the same mistake that he's been repeating over and over and over again and that's why he leaves him sick right and so he's breaking free of the reaper in some way um realizing that that doesn't always need to be the reaction that he takes that makes sense i like that yeah to me that's what i see here with him getting sick and ill and like reacting to his reaction Mm -hmm. so he turns to the holocube that he's that has been left and he sees all of those executions he witnesses them all he doesn't skip any he grins and bears it he doesn't grin and bear it he just bears it um and truly feels a deep and intense guilt for his actions. But most of them, at the end of their lives, shattered a name. And while they were dying, it wasn't Eos, it wasn't Ares, it was Daros. It was the Reapers. Fuck, man. That sucks so I actually hard. Think it sucks a lot. I, it does suck a lot. I want to clarify. I don't think they shot the Reaper's name. I think they shot Daros. It was Daros. Um, I think that that's meant to be. Yeah. I think right. it's... They shot my name. It's mine. The name yeah. they say is mine. So... It, it could probably be both and he would take them the same way one yeah. or the other and but what sucks the most about it is the fact that like it's not that they're still praising him and calling for him and praying for him despite what he's done it's without understanding that it's a direct response to his action like it, it's it's much more hollow in that sense and rings his bell a little bit more than I think it would have. Because it's one thing to yeah. maintain a sort of praise for a messiah, even if they betray you. And it's another thing to be the messiah reckoning with this sort of betrayal without them understanding yeah. what was going on. I mean, this week is a reckoning, right? Like that's that's kind of the way that we've been trying to paint it here is that like this is Darrow this is Scarta reckoning with his decision. This is Darrow reckoning. This is Diomedes reckoning with the reality of what the society that he supported was. This is Darrow reckoning with the choices that he's made. This week is a reckoning. Yeah. By all counts. So with that, we'll get into chapter 60. Darrow, the weight of guilt. Darrow shuffles his way to center stage to be judged by numerous guards and thousands of rebels, all of whom were damaged by Darrow's actions, destroying the docks of Ganymede and sacrificing the sons of Ares in his trade to Romulus. He then, before speaking, gets to have a brief chat with Ore, and Darrow believes that he sees love between Diomedes and her. He takes a moment to call him a noble idiot and tries to ensure that the two of them move to save as many people as possible on the surface and... In in that moment, we get this sort of 
feedback that everyone's tried to convince Athena and everyone else that, you know, saving people is the right move, but they're dead set on this trial. Through all of this, through this interaction with Ore, I'm still unsure of Ore's actual motivation and her understanding of what was going to happen. I think it's the previous section or maybe one chapter, two chapters ago, whenever he wakes up or or comes to, he refers to them being here as Ore's betrayal. So there's that, but on the same hand, or on the other hand, I don't know why I said the same hand. That's dumb. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> the same hand. I got uh, two on, hands. On the other hand, he seems to be under the impression that she's acting in his and Europa's best interest or at the very least uh, is, is still deserving of confidence ship and friendship from Darrow. So it's complicated and I still don't know what to make of her. It is a sort of, it's difficult to kind of work her out as she is kind of in the middle of these two different rebellions and is also like, in love with with Diomedes and sort of the way that that is like maybe not love and then Darrow's like you fucking idiots <laughs> yeah. you're both fucking dumb which is of course very very great very wonderful here between the two but it is hard to reckon with her place you know to some degree like she is it feels like I don't know I don't know what your sentiment is but do you feel like she's more on the daughter's side or more on Darrow's I have no side? idea I can't even tell hmm. like yeah I my gut reaction is to say that she is more on Darrow's side and was hopeful that the daughters would receive him with some sort of level of respect but that feels ill-fated from the jump given her understanding of how they feel about Darrow so I don't know Fair That makes sense. I get it. All right. I want to talk for a moment about canons of rhetoric as you know pj i i <laughs> uh, i taught rather i didn't teach but i coached speech and forensics which is also kind of like teaching in the way that it was for that it was i mean i don't know it was a whole thing you had to teach people how to write speeches and you had to like coach how to perform them and whatnot but for a number of years and it's part of the reason that i love the series so much i haven't really ever gone off i think specifically on the way that different speeches are executed outside of like a tackling, tackling it from the Aristotelian perspective. There's so many different ways that great speeches can be broken down. And the primary way that a lot of people talk about rhetoric in general is the five canons of rhetoric. They break down into inventio, dispositio, elocutio, memoria, and pronunciatio, as well as actio. Those kind of interchange depending on who you're talking to. But what they boil down to is the sort of invention, which is the refinement of the argument. This is sort of the point that you're making as you develop yourself through a speech to a point. The disposition or arrangement is generally how it's organized to the greatest effect, meaning you want to make sure that you constructed, you can use other forms of rhetor- rhetorical devices, rhetorical devices to fuel your speech to get you to the end, right? So you can use like an Aristotelian style argument. That's what your dispositio is is the sort of style that you're using in the moment. Elocutio is actually how you present them. It is literally the word style. I know that I just said style, but it is literally the style in which and the sort of poetic flourishes that you'll see inside of a speech. You might see people repeat things intentionally or hit on the same beats over and over again to point to their elocutio. Um, 
often in almost every speech, and this is even uh, cited within the Aristotelian arguments, but you'll see people point to memoria, which is the memory, um, which is pointing to something in you or in the audience. And it is sort of the persuasive process by which it either feels like you are summoning the speech from within yourself in this moment or that you have it memorized and your ability to deliver it without losing that sort of personal or interpersonal connection. And then pronunciatio, of which is the presentation or actio, the delivery. So that is literally how it is delivered, the tone, your ability to fluctuate and actually deliver that speech, which we can only pin on Tim Gerard Reynolds. <laughs> yeah, so that's those are those are kind of the five canons. And I think that in particular, there is I, I coached a number of categories. Uh, I coached oratory. I coached predominantly what's called the public speaking wing um, with a little bit of the drama mixed in at the end. But in particular, one of my favorite things to coach and one of everyone's least favorite categories to coach was great speeches. Uh, and great speeches was basically this idea of taking something that was a historical speech and then applying one of these heretical models. These, oh my God, I hate this word, rehereticians approach to the speech, breaking it down from a historical lens or from a perspective of one of these models, pointing out all the different components as they build and as they lead. You could absolutely do that with this entire fucking chapter. This chapter is easily, without a doubt, Pierce's best written speech. It may not be the most immediately inspiring. It may not be the most like immediately gung-ho, leave you with the feeling of like charging out into the streets, but it is without question the best written speech from a speech writer, reader, judger's perspective. I, it's impossible to not give the weight of guilt a five-star yeah. top-tier Pierce Brown Award. I don't have the academic understanding of speeches, but I still fucking loved it. So passes my test too. Truly, I only, I got in to like ethics and philosophical arguments a little bit at the tail end of high school. But what really pushed me into studying them was coaching speech and was understanding great speeches. And then that pushed me from like rhetorical styles into ethics and morals and some of these other sort of judgmental styles and Aristotelian arguments, as well as a close family friend that I had a lot of philosophical conversations with. But yeah, I mean, fuck, this is like literally my love language is not my only love language, many, but like I fucking love this shit. And so breaking, I could spend an entire hour just talking about this speech, mm -hmm. but we we're not going to do that. So but I right. wanted to make it clear. Fuck. <laughs> <sighs> All right. So we, we start off the speech um, with the sort of uh, dispositio or our initial memory of the speech, right? Which is where he's going to start out mirroring something that we've seen previously in this story from Cassius's point of view in books prior. It's the same line. It's the same idea. He says, years ago, a friend stood before a court much like this one. I plead now as he did then. I am guilty. And this is a bold move to start off the speech with in the same way that it was for Cassius back in the day. It, Neither of them were wrong. It, true. Wrong. The one key difference between this speech and that one is the fact that Cassius didn't really need to convince the entire crowd. Tried to. Helped. Didn't need to. The, the convincing of 
Severo and Sefi basically were the two and Severo was helping and it was kind of at the, the decision was made at the gunpoint of Severo arguing that if Cassius is executed, so should he for the same reasons. So it's a little bit different. It's not quite a one-to-one, but I fair well, to yes. make the comparison. Yeah, it isn't it isn't quite one to one. I would also say that he was under similar threat. I mean, it wasn't just that he had True. to convince two people. He was also like people. The Obsidians were actively rioting, yeah. as is pointed out. Like that was it was not a safe space for anyone. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah. Very true. But to that point, he does he does begin to point us towards sort of that that style and begins very earnestly with with that direction i've already reiterated this but darrow then proceeds into the most righteous speech of the series to me and it's a full five-ish pages so i am going to try my hardest not to read it all over mm-hmm. the course of this episode mostly because time constraints and like i said i could i could do a full episode on this chapter a full hour maybe not a full two hours but i could i could talk about this chapter for a fucking hour on its own but we'll hit the chunks that we view to be important and bring them up as you you think about them as well. But we've been talking about over the course of the story, the idea of the layered dream, right? And this idea that this is more than EO. It's it's sort of the, um, it's it's not the dream of Mustang, but it's the endurance of Mustang. It's the dream of Ragnar. It's the dream of Ares. It's the dream of EO, right? And this is getting into our elocutio. Instead of the speeches, he says, I believe in the dream of Eo, the dream of Ares, the dream of Ragnar, that we are all born with the right to choose our own destinies, to live in peace, to pass down that same freedom to our children. And so I also wish we could just read the whole thing. But if you haven't listened to the audiobook, Tim Gerard Reynolds would do a better job than either of us. Way better. So better. Yeah. yeah, listen to him do it. It's great. It's wonderful. It's striking, passionate, humble. It shows a true understanding of their plight and what they fight for and why and what they believe in. He he very intimately understands this crowd. <laughs> Even though he hasn't yeah. met any of them, he he understands what they're what they stand for. So Makes a very good speech he, about it. He also understands how he wronged them, right? And I think that's a big point mm-hmm. that he makes inside of this is the weight, again, the weight of guilt being the title of this chapter, but the way that that weighs immediately on him and sort of the the presence, you know, he, he says it, but I, I reek of blood and shame. I'm sorry for what I've done, but I do not apologize for why I did it. And that's right before this, I believe, in the dream section. Mm-hmm. And... It is truly, in all cases, his fault. He's been a violent warlord, as he's kind of needed to be and been forced to be in a lot of different ways. And so he, you know, he has to, like, plea to some degree, at the very least, not not for his life, but for them to continue properly, right? Mm -hmm. He encourages everyone here not necessarily to let him go, by any means, but then after they decide to kill him, of which he basically concludes as a foregone conclusion, to continue the fight. His his pleas are more aimed around the idea that he wants his son to see him in the best light in his own head, 
and he pours out everything as, that he possibly can in this moment on that dais. He adds Diomedes, I think, you know, maybe to Diomedes' point a little bit unfairly, but to add weight and maybe give him a chance out of this, um, at least to explain what happened and how unlikely it is that Thaw is their true enemy to kind of pit them in fighting the wrong fight versus fighting the good fight, which I think is right. important. Yeah, the the speech, obviously, like we've been discussing, hits really, really hard. But it hits even harder when you come to understand at the end of this that it was written as though Pax was in attendance standing next to Severo. And yeah. like the intention is directing this at his son. Fucking man. <laughs> so emotional. Yeah. So good. Yeah. It's hard to add notes to this section, this chapter with, with such a well-written, beautiful speech. Like Pierce truly, truly outdid himself in this one. Put his whole yeah, ass into it, it. He he put his whole fucking ass into it. He climbed that mountain like it was at some some little gym with like the weird orange blue putty things, and he climbed it all the way up, and then climbed it all the way down, and then picked the harder one and did it again, just cause you know. Right. Climbed the wall in a bunch of different ways, but yeah, it. I mean, it's it's a lot, and he he specifically says that like this dream is. He wants to give it to his son. And so as as you're saying, like this, again, I don't think that Darrow wrote this speech. I think that this is just coming out of him. He's obviously thought about it, contemplated he, it. He didn't really write he it. He said but. the quote is that he wrote it in his head as though Pax yeah, was. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I wrote yes, was, yeah. was the quote that I was using, but the wrong term for what he did. Yeah. He's he's obviously improving with a little bit of like, I had a little bit of time to think about it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> you know. He says, I did not betray you because I saw your misery. I did not turn you over to Romulus because I delighted in your suffering. I did it because I was young, blind, but most of all, I was afraid. So I strayed from the path of Fitchner of EO and I took a shortcut. And and that is mm. ugh, pain. Total pain. Because like it is the obstacle is the way, right? So sometimes a shortcut feels like it is a way around the obstacle. And this is him admitting to fucking up and being like, hey. I thought that there was a way to shortcut around the difficult thing that was going to have to be done regardless, because eventually, as he's admitted previously, like the eventuality was always going to be going to the war with the rim. Even after the core was settled, they were going to have to go fight the rim just to ensure their own freedom and peace and the freedom of those and everyone else. So we return in some ways to the topic of dancer as he proceeds through his rhetoric Focusing in on that memoria and sort of presentation of this whole thing as everyone would recall it in the moment and appealing, I think, more than anything else to their to the pathos of everyone listening. So that is why Ares chose me. He knew I could be the dirty hand of the rising. I could be the man who does the bad things for most of my life. I have thought that was a curse. Now I see it was a blessing. If you look at where we started, we are a thousand times stronger now. I do not ask for your forgiveness or your mercy. I ask only that you succeed where I failed. Do not surrender your dream to fear. Do not take the short route through shadow. You know the path. If you think you are alone in it, just look to your right, look to your left, look across the solar system, and see what I see. A tide of one people who want only one thing. Liberty. 
this is a very strong ending under one condition. And that condition is what makes this potentially fall flat as far as the the speech goes. And fall flat is maybe not the right way to say it, but if my read on the daughters is correct, um, it's not that they don't want liberty, but it's that they also want revenge and they also want justice in equal amounts. And that is where the the streams get crossed a little bit. That's where where things start to fuck up and things fall apart when when taking this argument for from Darrow. So as long as they're able to see past that and see that liberty is the ultimate goal, even if revenge and justice are also goals, but not the final one. Then this brings true, but if they are blinded by revenge, this whole speech starts to fall apart. Yeah, he's he's speaking to justice, really, right? Like, if we want to try to create a mm-hmm. summary, right? He's he's speaking to the proper justice of the moment in in sort of the the justice for all colors. That's what he's trying to become. That's like kind of his. It's the core point. I wouldn't say it's a thesis, but it's the core point of the end of this, especially is driving that like we need to fight for everyone, for all colors, because we all want one thing and that's liberty. And that extracts him from that side of the equation of like, well, we're looking for something else. So your speech doesn't immediately pertain to us, which is the reaction of the crowd for the most part. Hmm. Uh, But I would say at the very least, it leaves them with something to consider. I wouldn't say what's crazy is, is despite this being the best written speech, it's almost it is to a different audience. This is to packs. This is to a crowd that will survive past this moment. It is not overtly persuasive to this crowd that wants a head on a bike. Right. Exactly. Totally. Mm-hmm. I'm behind that. <sighs> yeah. It's and that and that sucks because this is again easily as so far as we've witnessed one of Darrow's best speeches, and it is kind of left betrayed at the altar (laughs) right (laughs) alone with an audience who didn't realize that they were engaged but yeah from there it then turns diabetes and he says full speech full quote we get two great speeches this chapter and they both have the same implications from a canons of of reason perspective which is so good but one is significantly shorter than the other (laughs) diabetes says in total Civilization is based on exchange and social contracts. I was taught that low colors exchange liberty for security and stability. We have failed to provide security. We have failed to provide stability. We have failed you. Contract is broken. Take your due. Fuck, man. Pierce Brown is able to, as you mentioned, prove back to back that great speeches can be written in... More than five pages or less than five lines in in equal weight. <laughs> it's such a such a great piece of dialogue from Diomedes. Yeah. I mean it's it's straight out of it, it it's not immediately reminiscent, but it reminds me of the quote from Hamlet, which is brevity is the soul of wit, right? Yeah. In a lot of ways. And I think you could argue here, especially brevity is the soul of truth. And to be so 
obstinate with the facts and reality of the situation as comparing these two very honorable men is they're worlds apart in True. terms of the way that they take responsibility for their actions, which is crazy. No justification, just the end result. Yeah, oh, it's, it's so good. I'm curious what people think because that's such a that's such a great response from Diomedes that like does does them going through with that execution take away from the the revelry in executing him like I don't know I think to that point I think that I would hope I should say I don't I don't know if this is fully textual by any means but I would hope that the end result of that execution would yield something more akin to this being a sort of, and again, this all boils down to the perspective, right? Like the perspective of the society, as we mentioned earlier, the social contract is completely off from our, from the low colors understanding and perception versus the gold's perception. And especially the way that the raws were raised. So I don't think it takes away from the revelry because this is sort of the propaganda that's been fed on the top end, right? Mm. But at the very least, they might come to a sort for those of whom care or want to pay attention, they might be like, oh, this occludes some of that joy that I that I am extracting or that I could be extracting from the moment. So to your point, yeah, I, I think that it lands, his head would land in the basket with a resounding thud. I feel like there would be less cheers than if than when Darrow's head landed in the basket. Fair. You know, in a in a weird yeah. way, because there's like there's the sort of indirect wrong and there's the direct wrong. And that might even be kind of incorrect. But I, I think I stand by that more immediately. Like the, the wrong of Darrow is much more immediate than the wrong of the raw, which has been a longer view. And not being sold out by your own. I think that there's something distinctly worse. There's your oppressor, mm-hmm. and then there's Kin being your oppressor. Yeah. All right. That brings us to our final chapter of the week, The Three Masters, chapter 61, from Darrow's perspective. I did that entirely backwards, but we're here, so we're doing it. We return to the cell, and Cassius sits waiting for us, brandishing a newly gained black eye. He asks if they're all going to die, and the other two Razor Masters disagree on their plights. Cassius, ever the clever conversationalist, realizes that they are likely the best three fighters in the universe when Darrow and Diomedes double-team him with a comedic or Cassius, yes, shut up, ask and answer between the three of them. There's there's a strange mood to this interaction, and I think it's primarily because of Cassius's jovial sort of uh, bravado Mm -hmm. in in the commentary. that gives this gallows humor a lot more levity, I think. Oh, yeah, entirely. Um, right. But that's further fed by the snappy, humorous response from Darrow and Diomedes. So I, I it's like jarring in a good way. It, it feels yeah. it feels a lot lighter than I know it is. Just in this first half of this first chapter of this last chapter. This line or this section, this joke in particular, feels so written for TV or movie. Like this feels like my immediate instinct is to say this was ripped from the D and D movie most recently. 
because there is a number of jokes that line up with this sort of cadence. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. would fit into it would that feel at home. perfectly. Especially yeah. like Cassius's hello. I thought that was very funny. That was fun. Um, so from there, Diomedes comes back blaming Darrow for impunging his honor and he begins to unfurl what we saw happen on Kalaki and the imposter that he witnessed wearing Helios's skin. This begins to lead directly to Darrow and Cassius, believing that it is likely that this is all Atlas is doing. He even cites the same reasons that Atlas cited, that there is inertia now and he can't stop this from happening. The reaction to Diomedes telling them about Atlas was pretty great with him falling back on the argument that he didn't trust him yet. Like why, why he is telling them now as opposed to before. I assume this cell is entirely monitored, like every cell that we've dealt with from Darrow's point of view. So hopefully this conversation can maybe help them out in the future. That'd be pretty dope. <laughs> That'd be pretty nice. Be pretty sweet. Be pretty good. Mm-hmm. There's also a little line that happens here within this. <laughs> and I, I believe it's from Cassius. And he says, so you're right. And Atlas is the devil himself, as everyone keeps telling me. <laughs> he is? Like, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> no Fuck one's that scarier, guy. man. Oh, God. <laughs> <Fuck that> guy. <laughs> yeah just horrifying Mm -hmm. in every way shape and form and just lurking in the background like ever the terror that you could blame things on he doesn't even need to show his face yeah yeah or someone else's face (laughs) oh god right 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 and it seems like just post that that they even pieced together why lysander was there to begin with it was atlas's plan to make lysander the Lightbringer, like selenius the Lightbringer before him that was this part of the plan all along and that he could pin the blame on Atalantia as well. That son of a bitch. Fuck, fuck, man. <laughs> all of yeah. this coalescing, all of this coming together is exciting and enrapturing, but so frustrating and so annoying, but really fun to read. I enjoy this strategic breakdown from Darrow and the slight corrections and like he's able to run down this corridor of understandings of what's probably happening based on limited information. And he's able to very quickly pivot that corridor when he's revealed more information from Diomedes. And it's just, it reads like a brilliant detective novel. (laughs) Mm-hmm. You know, like just great detective work on Darrow's part, deducing what's yeah. going on. It it really does kind of like piecing this all together. It does feel like a almost thriller or detective novel revelation, right? It it feels, it, it's strange to put it this way, but it feels more at home in something like uh, dark matter or recursion than it does so far as we've seen in uh, Red Rising. Yeah, I'd agree. There's not nearly as much deduction all the time, especially mostly from Darrow's perspective. Ephraim did a ton of deduction, but from Darrow's perspective, yeah, not always. Mm -hmm. Diomedes also gives a eulogy of sorts to Cassius, reaffirming his belief that Lysander did well as his adopted charge. He tells him, I'm sorry he was aboard. He wept when he thought you died on Io, and I know you had your differences. 
but he was the only gold of the core who gained my trust and my mother's, and even, I think, Helios's. He honored his word and was a truly noble man. Had I to grant the credit for that, it would not be Octavia. I mourn the loss of his light. Cassius slumps against the wall, broken and in pain again at the loss of his friend. So our chapter ends. Yeah. I'm frankly a little bit surprised by the conviction that Diomedes expresses here. I shouldn't be, I don't think. I know he trusted and and respected Lysander and held him to a very high standard. And are the cracks in Lysander's noble facade so well hidden? Is it just that so. we get to see it through his perspective? Mm-hmm. Or do we scrutinize Lysander too much? And is he as as close to a pinnacle noble gold as we're going to get in the stories? It, it seems like Diomedes would be the proper arbiter of that uh, level of honor, you know? I have a better argument for you here. I think that to your point of Diomedes being the arbiter of honor means that he is the ideal gold. Right. Oh, for uh, sure. I, I guess yeah, I'm, like, I'm removing him from the contention. Okay. Yeah. 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 So I want to I want to give I want to give him the credit, but I do think that Lysander, at the very least, in the way that he presents himself, is very different than the way that he thinks about things and works through things. And he is playing a political game in which makes him, and he chooses to be hypocritical um, in thought versus action. Often, mm-hmm. that's um, fair. And only only recently has he been able to rectify that more closely to shift him towards you know aligning honor and action but not entirely and so Mm -hmm. it it feels like there's there's just something there on the other side of that too i think that he has come to understand diomedes has come to understand that cassius is a more an even more honorable man than he originally thought given going out for the low colors given choices to dive in and be the one that sacrifices himself he may not have heard the comms call that led darrow and everyone else to do that but he still sees that choice of saving even though like he was the one who intervened in the end on the guns and you know saved the day in quotes it was still the pair of them and their sacrifice that even made that possible Mm -hmm. and I, i don't think there's anything that would point to that being out of character for him or no, for the of golds in general sure. or the Raws in general, I think more specifically. Yeah, so. yeah. I, I don't think that any of this is out of character. I do also, I would cite Darrow in that he is a little bit of a noble idiot. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so like there, there is that nice layer right on top of that cake as well. So, yeah, that brings our, our chapter to a close as we can imagine why Cassius drinks. Which is which is a lot. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. It is a lot. I do have to ask PJ, where do you think the story goes next? Like, what's the next bite of the story that we're taking? I don't think they're wrong in assuming left. Yeah. So I think, oh, God, I I think next one third of the book, we do not see Darrow. We do not see how this resolves. Mm. I think you you. Chopped it off to the point where we go to Lysander in Virginia next. God, it's been a minute since we've seen Virginia, huh? It's been a minute. I don't know, man. So I I don't think that they're wrong in their assumption that those cheers were marking their executions, votes for their executions. And I think there is something 
extraordinary that that comes to pass that allows them to either escape or turn the tides of the of the mob against them. Maybe it's Ore. Maybe she breaks them out and slips them away, which would mean they're on Europa. It gets obliterated by Fa, and then we never have to deal with the consequences of this again. (laughs) (laughs) The daughters disappear. Or the revelation that Atlas is actively working with Fa. Like Fa is a puppet for Atlas might might turn the tides and allow them to follow Darrow, Cassius, and Diomedes' leadership in that sense. That's a hard that's a hard sell, but could happen. I don't know. Okay. All right, man. Well, the goal here was more to just get your thoughts on where we're going. So I really appreciate kind of diving in there. I uh, cannot wait to <laughs> um get there soon so i'm i'm very Perfect. stoked for where we're at and what's going on <clears throat> and with that i i have two notes before i talk about net or i have one one note before last week's chapter a appreciate everyone's patience with last week's episode of who is listening to this kind of on a weekly basis andrew had to move across the country it was a very tough move it led to there were a number of different things that piled and compiled that led to our episode coming out late but very excited for Andrew in this next step of his life, the the new state that he's in, and a new job that we're both very excited for in a number of ways. So cheers yeah. to Andrew. Cheers, Thank Andrew. You, bud, for, for getting this out and for, you know, obviously supporting the show. Other than that, next week, we will continue through part three, Tempest, reading chapters 62 through nice. <laughs> 69. Sorry. Oh, good. That's oh, a, that's the level of I mean everybody knows the level of maturity that we have on this show so it's not a surprise. <laughs> we would hope so. <laughs> so that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you as mentioned to Tim and Andrew as always to Tim and Andrew for being the backbone of the show and truly making it possible to put out on a weekly basis. Fundamentally wouldn't have came out without you. Yeah, for sure. You, dear listeners, check out the show notes. You can find links to our schedule, our Patreon, previous episodes, websites, social media accounts, all in one convenient spot. Yes. Beyond that, make sure that you leave a five-star review. If you don't leave a five-star review, we will try you in a court of thousands that you wronged in a war crime be committed long, long ago. Good luck with that one. Hopefully something happens. I had that, that one off the dome. <laughs> <laughs> springs you from prison. Uh, (laughs) check us out on blue sky twitter's dead instagram and reddit at words whiskey pod uh words and whiskey show at gmail.com if you want to send across an angry emails uh patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey and t-shirts if you want to give us like maybe a quarter of a cent or two at t public PJ, we have some new fun things actually happening in December that I'm very excited about. So for those of you who've stuck it out this long, the first week of December, we have some things finally coming to fruition. So very excited for those. Hmm. I'm excited to find out what those are as one of the laboring in the dark co-owners of this company. (laughs) Come on. You you mostly know. I know. know. Fuck you. All right. With that, we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.